And, uh, yeah, we just, uh, I, uh, we, we, me, I, I just talked to Bill Guggenheim, actually, so. Oh, I love Bill. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we literally named the field of research, we defined it, and we wrote the book, Hello from Heaven, which founded it. Wow. After death communication, or ADC. And I know Bill talks in his book about so many people having these kind of communications. What does it mean? It, it, it actually means that we're divine, eternal beings, even now. So when you, when you have that change of mind that you're a cosmic being in a body, then it really enriches your life in a way that I think nothing else can. He said, Grandpa's here, Grandpa's here, and I'm going around. There ain't no Grandpa here, what are you talking about? <laughs> you had a dream, go back to sleep, don't wake me up. <laughs> Typical husband. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. On this edition of the program, we're going to do something a little bit different as we take another look at the phenomenon known as after-death communication. And in doing so, we're going to be splitting the show in half talking to two very different guests. In the first hour, you're going to be hearing from pioneering researcher Bill Guggenheim, who pretty much wrote the book on ADCs. And in the latter half of the program, ADC experiencer Dr. Annie Kagan will share her remarkable story. I will preview Dr. Annie Kagan's portion of the program following the first half, but first, let's talk a little bit about what you're going to be hearing from Bill Guggenheim. Bill is going to detail his journey to studying ADCs. It's quite the winding and compelling road, and he will tell us how it all led to the groundbreaking book, Hello from Heaven, which not only coined the term after-death communication, but also set the stage for future ADC research that has gone on for years. Bill will also explain the differentiation between ADCs and ghosts. He'll also tell us about cases which may prove that ADCs are not guilt-induced experiences, as well as reflecting on the difficulty in studying this nebulous subject. Plus, of course, tons and tons more including a truly chilling story of a woman who tried to contact Ted Bundy in the afterlife. You definitely want to hear that one, folks. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Guggenheim, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Bill Guggenheim and his former wife, Judy, 
conducted seven years of research on after-death communication, ADC, for their book, Hello from Heaven. During this time, they interviewed 2,000 people and collected more than 3,300 first-hand accounts of ADC experiences. Bill is on the board of advisors of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and is a member of the Association for Death Education and Counseling. He presents workshops at conferences for bereavement support groups, hospices, churches, colleges, and many other types of institutions. His website is www.after-death.com. Pretty simple as long as you remember the hyphen, folks. After-death.com. And his iconic book is titled, of course, Hello from Heaven. You definitely want to check that one out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 18th, 2013. Bill Guggenheim, talking about after-death communication on BOA Audio Season 8. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. And we're coming at you with a pair of guests discussing after-death communication in various forms. And since we're getting into this, I really want to talk to the man who opened my eyes up to the entire phenomenon, and that is Bill Guggenheim. He is the co-author of the book, Hello from Heaven, and he is the man behind the website, afterdeath.com. And you want to put a hyphen in there, folks, so it's after-death.com. He has done 25 years of research on this topic, probably more, and really has dug into after-death communication, or ADCs, as we're going to be calling them over the course of this conversation, for a very long time and uncovered a lot of fantastic information. We talked way back on BOA Audio Season 3, which was a stunning five years ago. So I, I kind of felt like I needed a refresher on this and talk more about it and really look at it again from a second point of view. So I really wanted to get him back on the program to look at this stuff again. Bill, welcome back to BOA Audio. I'm really excited to talk to you again, pal. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoy doing this with you. I guess, you know, just to bring people up to speed, let's give them a little refresher on, you know, who is Bill Guggenheim? How did you find out about after-death communication? And then how did you decide to really become an authority on the subject? Well, <laughs> my background is very different than who I am now. But uh, I used to live in New York City, and I was a stockbroker and a securities analyst on Wall Street. Oh, wow. Literally. I worked for two different uh, small firms that were on Wall Street. But that was a long time ago. And uh, so, so we shouldn't blame you for what, what's going on now. <laughs> no, no, not for what's going on now. I, frankly, <laughs> I don't even understand what's going on now. It's all complex. <laughs> but it's just uh, more greed than ever. That's all. More that greed. seems to be the case. Right. And uh, however, my life did uh, take a different direction. When I, in 1976, I had moved to Florida, and we were living in Siesta Key, which is an island off Sarasota, and we had cable TV, and my wife, Judy, had said to me, come on in and watch Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is going to be on the Phil Donahue show, mm-hmm. and I had vaguely knew who she was, but not I didn't know for sure. But basically, she was a woman who had written all the books about death and dying. And uh, she went on to write some more as well. She's the one that came up with the stages of grief, right? Uh, the five stages of grief, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, basically, denial, 
bargaining, depression, anger, and hopefully acceptance. Mm -hmm. But much more than that, she worked with terminally ill children, and she brought them into her own. Well, she went to them at their bedside and uh, listened to them. She worked with the terminally ill by actually interviewing them and bringing them, some, in some cases, into seminars where nurses and doctors were attending her uh, her, her, her classes. And it was a whole eye-opening experience for everyone. Also, she was one of the first people to uh, study and, and learn about near-death experiences. And that's what she spoke about that day on the Phil Donahue show. So it wasn't about death and dying. It was about uh, near-death experiences. Right. Then, coincidentally, two weeks later, the same show ran. And Judy said, she's on again. And this time I went in, I knew who she was. And I was very moved by her, even a second time. And uh, it put up her name and address. If you wanted to make a donation, you could mail a check or to her. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a small check for $25. Not a big deal or anything. And I figured out that would be the end of it. Sort of, the, you know, your your good feel for the day, like giving to the Boy Scouts exactly, or yeah. the cake drive or, you know, any, any charity. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be it. But lo and behold, several weeks later, I received a package in the mail. It contained a cassette of audio cassette tapes called Lessons from a Dying Patient and an invitation to attend a five-day workshop of hers, oh, wow. which would be held several months later, but just across the other side of Florida. I lived on the west coast of Florida. This would be on the east coast. Okay. And at first I felt very uh, elated and kind of thrilled that a famous person would invite me to attend her workshop, but I was not in that field. Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse or a social worker or uh a chaplain or anything to do with you know any of those fields. Mm -hmm. So I figured, well, that would be just kind of like a waste for me to attend. I'll give my space away or have her give it away to somebody else. So I waited to the last day of registration uh, for the workshop, and I called the office expecting to get her secretary. Lo and behold, there was a snowstorm in Illinois that day where Elizabeth was living, and she answered her own phone for secretary who could not get there. Mm -hmm. And I recognized her voice immediately because she has a very strong German-Swiss accent. And I identified who I was, and I went through my little thing, thank you very much for inviting me, but give my space away, blah, blah. And she paused, and then she said very simply in her accent, Bill, I think you should be there. <laughs> So as I said, uh, I say in my workshops, if nothing else, it shows them a pushover for very dom dominant women. <laughs> she is, was. And I did go to the workshop several months later, but I didn't know at that time people flew in from all over the world to attend them. Oh, wow. And I only lived two hours away. And... Uh, and they were reserved for a year in advance. And here I'm just like three months earlier. I mean, yeah, this is like kismet. And there were um, 70 of us. And we bonded after three days so strongly. It was like a family. And everybody, uh, we shared our, our pain and our grief. And I don't mean just of death, but of divorces or losses of any kind, mm -hmm. which could be loss of health or loss of a limb, loss of money or a job, loss of relationships of some kind, whatever it was. Right. And uh, according to the people, the uh, one of the most uh, searing stories was a young woman who was a nurse who, when she was a teenager, had been a babysitter. And she was looking after the children, and through no fault of her own, the house had caught fire. 
Oh, and uh, one of the children had died as a result. Oh, God. So her grief was so strong. Mm. So it was all kinds of grief. But we, we just bonded. It was beautiful. And she even flew Raymond Moody down from Virginia to talk to us. I mean, nobody flies somebody in from Virginia to, to Florida just to speak for two to three hours. But yeah. she did. And that's where I met Raymond Moody and heard more about near-death experiences. But it was also where I heard some people talk, share ex experiences where they had been contacted by someone who had died. Okay. And this is in our book. One woman herself was a nurse, and her daughter had been hit and killed while she was out walking with a friend. And the two girls had been hit and killed by a car, uh, which came around the curve at, at dusk in Indiana. Uh, or Illinois, whichever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then her daughter came to her um, quite a few months later, and her daughter was uh, beautiful health in a lovely uh, dress, and just was smiling and filled with love, and telling her mother verbally that she was okay, don't worry about her, and she's fine. Right. And wow. Whatnot. And I thought, well, with my background of being from New York, and I frankly went to Yale where you learn to analyze everything. <laughs> and Wall Street, you, you, you analyze it and chop it up like mincemeat. Exactly. And I uh, believe nothing. And I heard the word dream, and I said, dreams aren't real, and so I discarded it. Okay. Then she went on to say how her son had uh, been doing his homework and looked up and saw his sister, his, uh, who's a little bit older, his sister, uh, there, and she, and she could describe her and what she was wearing and everything, and that scared him, so he came running out of his room telling his parents that Kathy was in his uh, bedroom. And I thought about that for a second, thought, teenage boy sees dead sister in Peoria, Illinois. That doesn't happen unless you're stoned, meaning on drugs. <laughs> so I dismissed that as, you know, probably uh, we'll just call it uh, marijuana. There you go, sure. You don't need anything more than that. So I threw, threw that one away. But then Elizabeth went on to tell a story herself. Now, this was a woman who had been nominated for She never won it, but she had been nominated to receive the Nobel Prize for Peace. Oh, wow. Uh, but she didn't get enough votes to win it, but at least she got some. And, uh, it's better than I've so, done, Bill. <laughs> so she had everything to lose and nothing to gain by saying that uh, she was very discouraged in her work at one point. And she was. I mean, this was true. Because the medical establishment was in opposition to her. In hospitals back in the 50s and 60s, the, the consensus belief was everybody was going to get well and go home and be happy. And there was no room for people dying. They were in denial when she went in to find patients that were terminally ill. She was told there aren't any. Oh, God. But that was the, the mindset back then. It's different now, but that's where it was back in the 50s and 60s. And so it was very hard. She had to find her own people and all that. Because mm -hmm. everybody was going to plump up the pillow. The nurses were going to plump up the pillows, put up the blinds, and say, oh, you're looking better today, Mr. Smith. You're looking lovely, Mrs. Jones. And <laughs> let me comb your hair a little bit. Yeah. Even though, even though they had tumors from cancer and all the rest of it, blah, yeah. blah. And uh, so she was going to put in her resignation from doing this work because there was so much opposition from the establishment. And she was going to, to write a letter. And uh, she'd just seen a, a guest out of her, from her office. And she was at the elevator when another woman said, Dr. Ross, may I have a few minutes of your time? And they walked down the corridor back to... Elizabeth's office, and Elizabeth rec 
knew this woman was familiar. At first, she re- she recognized her as being just somebody, but she couldn't place her. Okay. But she did what she called reality testing, and she was a full-fledged. Elizabeth was a psychiatrist. Yeah, she's a, she's uh, a scientist. I mean, scientist and psychiatrist. Yeah. So she's trained in these things, mm-hmm. and she did what she called reality testing. And went through different models. I don't understand that because that's not part of my background. But she, the one thing she noted was this woman was not fully solid. And then she did recognize her as being a patient of, of Elizabeth who had died 10 months earlier. Hmm. And she had remembered that the woman had rallied and uh, failed, rallied and failed a number of times. And uh, back and forth, and she had a minister she was very close to. So when they uh, arrived at Elizabeth's office, the woman, uh, her real name is Betty Schwartz, I can say that. We didn't call her that in the book, but Betty Schwartz said, uh, Dr. Ross, you must promise me not to quit your work. It's too important. You must continue with your uh, research and writing and what you're doing. It's just too invaluable for humanity for you to stop. And Elizabeth agreed, and then she said, would you mind terribly writing a letter or a note, a note to your minister? So this woman who was deceased did, with a pen, write a short note to the minister who had been part of her life before she died. I have not seen that, but I've heard the story a number of times and seen it in print a number of times as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, the woman, Betty Schwartz, extracted the same promise a second time from Elizabeth. Elizabeth agreed. Uh, the woman went to the door. Elizabeth paused a moment, then ran after her to, for whatever reason, just, just like, what, what's going on here? Yeah. Looked up and down the hallway, and there was nobody there. Almost like she snapped out of it, kind like, of. Like, poof, gone. Yeah. De-vapor, or vaporized or beamed up Scotty or something, whatever. <laughs> wherever it went. And uh, so Elizabeth did not resign. She continued. And at that point, as I wrote in the book, if a pin had dropped, it would have sounded like, like a metal crowbar dropping on a concrete floor in a garage. Mm, yeah. Everybody was still, nobody had heard a story like this. this yeah, yeah. From a leading person. I mean, it wasn't, you know, somebody who maybe, who knows where they're coming from psychologically or whatever. Yes, and the, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, it's like all, all of the accounts of UFOs and alien abductions and everything else. <laughs> It's, uh, <laughs> well, let me. Uh, I, I will. I'm going to cut in here because I'm already enjoying this so much. I almost want to ask you, like, how do you reconcile? I guess uh, we we have the twelve types of ADC. We went over those in the previous conversation. We can get into that down the line if we if we choose to. But I guess uh, from a broader perspective, how do you sort of reconcile? Like to me, that sounds like a ghost story. Yeah, except no. Uh, Ironically, nobody used the word ghost. That's what I mean. It's an and, interesting And when you interview people, ordinary people, they do not use the word apparition. They don't call it parapsychology or any of these terms that the intellectual people use. Okay, okay. And in our book, we don't use any of those words. Those are all buzzwords. They're turnoff words for the average person. Okay. And, or, and whatnot. So... Uh, I didn't know what to do with this. When I came home, I wanted to do more, find out, well, if there's one case of, of Elizabeth, maybe there's two or three or four or how many. I was curious. Oh, boy. But there was no Internet back there in 1976. Yeah. So I had to depend on public libraries, and I found books, and I could order books from all libraries in the whole country anywhere, and I got them. And I'd find two or three experiences here, a chapter there, uh, whatever. But nobody had done a full study. 
nobody ever. Mm-hmm. And yet they were written about, and this was in America, I imagine even more so in other countries, but I don't read any other languages. And But I didn't feel qualified to write a book on this. However, I did have an experience uh, in 1980, just a few years later, in which I heard a voice say to me, go out, go outside and check the swimming pool. And uh, our youngest son was in the pool. I didn't know it at the time, but he was in the pool. And when I looked and I went to the back of the house and opened the doors and everything, I saw he was in the deep end of the pool, not moving. And as it turned out, when I ran down beside him in the pool, uh, in the deep end, he was under the water with his eyes wide open. Oh, God. And that voice in my head, which had told me to go outside and check the swimming pool, uh, enabled me to jump in the water and push him to the side. And I had yelled Judy's name on the way, and she came out and rescued him. She pulled him out, that is. And he did not even require CPR. He coughed up some water. He was cold. I was cold because it was May, which is still chilly in Florida. Uh, but uh, he was fine. And that same voice spoke to me uh, in 1988 because I had tried to get Raymond Moody to write this book. And I was going to help him with it, and another man who was a parapsychologist was going to help him with it. And Raymond was a professor up at a college in Georgia at that time. And while he never said yes to me, he never said no. <laughs> so I got a kind of was strung along for 14 years here. <laughs> <laughs> and Raymond loves to do original research, and he wrote all kinds of books. But mm-hmm. anyway, he's a wonderful person. But then the voice spoke to me in 1988 and, and said, uh, Bill, do your own research and write your own book. It's your spiritual work to do. And I just followed that. Yeah. And Judy and I had been, been married 17 years, but at this point we had been divorced for four years. But she is the, the person who knew the most about this field because we had, I talked about it so much, and right. she had done a lot of reading herself, and she had had an experience with her grandfather herself, which I, I blew off when I first heard it, by the way. Mm. <laughs> uh, it was before uh, going to Elizabeth's workshop. Yeah, she before said, your eyes were opened. She said, Grandpa's here, Grandpa's here, and I'm going around. There ain't no Grandpa here. What are you talking about? <laughs> you, had, you had a dream. Go back to sleep. Don't wake me up. Typical <laughs> <laughs> husband, you know, yeah. I think. And so we began with the research in 1988 right here. In the, or I live outside of Orlando. Mm-hmm. Made up a one-page flyer, and wherever I could get two or three minutes to talk at the end of some group meeting, I would ask, has anybody here been contacted by someone who has died? And long story short, I found an average of 10 people a week, and we interviewed 500 people the first year. Wow. And uh, a few of them were not ADCs, I will admit that, but most of them were. What were the ones that weren't ADCs? Oh, they were just mistakes. Who knows what they were, just other things. Yeah. There, I mean, well, one was one was sounded like a very bad LSD. Uh, <laughs> somebody was out there. I can just just to show you the weird what what can be mis- misconstrued. Somebody was a uh, uh, um, a navy guy was on I believe a submarine, and they have their berths are like hammocks, and he looked over at this other hammock and he saw a uh, skeleton laying there. Oh, he boy. didn't know who it was or what or anything, and it was just what I call a bad trip. Yeah, yeah. I guess he's just been not down under uh, too long. In other words, anything can happen, and but you don't. ADC has a very specific definition, 
which perhaps would be a good idea if I read this. I was just going to say, you set me up perfectly there, Bill. So, uh, okay. yeah, let's let's give people sort of, uh, we're, we're giving them a refresher and we're re-digging into this. So uh, okay. what is the ADC An after-death communi communication, or ADC, is a spiritual experience that takes place when someone is contacted directly and spontaneously by a family member or friend who has died. Directly means that there is no third party involved. There are no mediums or psychics or Ouija boards okay. or devices of any kind uh, involved. And spontaneously means that our deceased loved one, family member or friend, chooses when, where, and how to contact us. So you, you don't make these happen. You allow these to happen which is kind of the backwards way for Americans. We want to make things happen. But right, right. And I think, I think it, it might be interesting to look at, you say friends and family, so we can kind of eliminate, I mean, you may be skeptical of these things, but there's a million stories of them, of people seeing a ghost yeah, at a random we, place. We purpose, okay, we purposely, right. uh, I'll not explain why, we purposely want to include everything to do with mediumship because that had been done before. And either people believed in them or didn't believe them, there was nothing new. Mm-hmm. And we wanted, we didn't want, yes, I saw a ghost. I was in a house in Savannah, Georgia, exactly. where there were a lot of right. ghosts right. in right. those houses. And I saw a spooky, white, shimmering something. Right. There has to be like a connection between the living we, and the dead yeah, to the, really they, make it work. They had to know who it was, who had contacted them, whether they saw them, felt them, heard them, whatever of the 12 categories. They had to know who it was and have a, a very strong uh, knowledge of the, it was that one person and nobody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't a guesswork. Like I, no, we didn't accept anything. Well, I think it could have been Aunt Maud or her cousin Beatrice. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You had to know it was Uncle Marty. You, you, you knew exactly who it was. Yes. And we made it a family member or friend because it, that's the majority of, of these experiences do occur to people who you know. You don't have to go anywhere to make them happen. You just they happen in your own home. I think they can happen anywhere. That's true. But the majority do happen within your own home. Right. But they can be in the office or in a shopping mall or airplane, a car, a sidewalk or anything else. But the majority are uh, somewhere in your own house or apartment or wherever you live. And even if you hate the person you work with, if they show up after death, we'll count it, right? You know, if you're like, I can't stand that Virginia in accounting, but then she yeah, dies. Wait, and believe it or not, <laughs> uh, we didn't have any accounts where the people had... I would call animosity between them. Okay. They may have had some unfinished business between them, like uh, forgiveness. And there were a few cases of that or abuse. Uh, I remember one woman was heavily abused by her uncle yeah. and whatnot, things like that. And he came back to apologize. To uh, He wasn't even asking for forgiveness as much as just truly sor sorrowful yeah. that he had abused her. Okay. okay all right. And so there were some of those, not many, but yes. Then when I say abuse, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we did not have people who were bitter enemies coming back to each other. Oh, okay. All right. So you don't have to worry about revenge. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. no. That's good. I um, tell you an anecdotal story of just, remember the person named Ted Bundy? Yeah. Who was a serial killer? Mm -hmm. For some reason, I mean, and I spoke to several thousand people when we were doing our research for seven years, 1988 to uh, 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 ninety five, There was a woman who, for some reason, wanted to have uh, contact with Ted Bundy. And I know there are some women 
who for some reason like to have contact with uh, criminals, uh, heavy-duty murderers and whatnot. And she, so she was asking for this experience and praying for it, literally, with Ted Bundy, because he, he, was, he was dead at this point. Yeah. And just to show you what can happen, at least for this woman, this is what happened, which she reported, because I remember it so well. It's as she was laying there, and she was awake, she was feeling like a mountain of black slime beginning to slide over her. Oh, God. And I don't know if I'm doing the right accent on the words, a mountain of black slime. I mean, just a huge amount of something hideous and probably evil smelling, yeah. bad smelling, and, and just no light and no... And she fortunately was able to abort her experience, just stop it right there. Wow. So you've got to be careful what you ask for. Yeah, I'll say. And uh, you don't want to have just anybody come to you. Jeez. So basically, all our work that I know of, and we interviewed uh, over 2,000 people, uh, the contacts are based upon love. Because it takes energy, it takes uh, understanding of how to come back to somebody and persistence in doing it. Right, and purpose, and, yeah. yeah. Well, all those different things. Okay, yeah. Well, it, yeah, I have here in the original notes here that you, had, you collected over 3,000 cases over the years, which is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. And, and it seems like it, it's the kind of thing that you, you know, you probably people don't share with each other, but if it comes up, you know, maybe at the Christmas party or something like that, next thing you know, or even this time of year with Halloween, next thing you know, uh, you're getting stories from people you work with that are like, Amazing tales that you don't really know what to do with, but they, they, they are these ADCs. Well, there are two kinds. I, I need to clarify that. Okay. Yes, I used to get uh, phone calls from radio stations around Halloween <laughs> because they equated our work with going to a ghostly cemetery. Right, right. And things like this. And near us, there's a spiritualist community called Casadega about half an hour away. And that's where there are a lot of mediums and whatnot. Yeah. People think there are a lot of ghosts there and stuff like that. This has, our work has nothing to do with that, but I get these phone calls <laughs> and want to get, get me on the show. And the typical radio shows at the most five minutes and they have a commercial and it's during drive time. And they come out with, well, what's the most frightening experience you ever heard? Well, that's not what I'm here to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you about the loving ones and the caring ones and the, the healing ones, things like that. Well, the joke's and, on them because we just got that Ted Bundy story, so that's pretty creepy. So, you know, if, if people want creepy, I'm not saying they can't have eerie and creepy and all, <laughs> all that goes with it, you know, the cobwebs and the... <laughs> the yeah, well, even the, the, the ride in the fun house when you're a little kid. Even the benign events are, can kind of spook you out, though, you know? You, yeah, find, yeah. you get some penny on your pillow in the morning, and you're like, this had to have come from beyond. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. But you were saying there's two types of uh, ADCs, so, well, uh, or no, two no, types no, of something. No, two types uh, of... Well, there are ADCs, which are what we've written about, mm -hmm. and then there are these other things that people have some. They think they've heard something or something's happened. Uh, I don't know what to call them myself. I do, yeah. I do recognize them as ghost stories. Okay, we'll call them supernatural yeah, you, experiences. You see, you see them on TV. They have this equipment. That's, uh, they're walking around. Everything's herky-jerky, and they've got this some kind of in a dark room and with a greenish glow to it. And they, may, I think they can make an ordinary house look creepy. Oh, I know. Yeah, well, anything you Paranormal see activity. And, and they go, shh. There's somebody here. There's somebody here. You know, all, all this stuff. 
And I don't I don't want to make too much fun of it, but part of it is very Hollywood. I know right, that. Right, right. So that, that, that's, that's the supernatural experiences. We'll just, yeah, we'll, we're pushing them to the side because we're looking at these ADCs, which I, I think are more, in a way, they're more everyday and they're more believable and they're more... I don't know. There's something more tangible about them to yeah, me. This than, is a than bereave- these are fall into a bereavement category. These, right. These comfort people. Yeah. They feel uplifted. They feel loved and valued and cared about. Because you see, there are two parts of grief. One is we are concerned for the one who died. Does he or she still exist? And how are they? Where are they? What are they going through? Mm-hmm. And whatnot. And the other is our sense of loss. And, uh, which can be tremendous. Uh, we did the most work with bereaved parents, parents who have had one or more children who have died. And uh, I gave one workshop to all the parents in the room who had lost their only child or all their children. Oh, God. And I, I spent a whole day there. And the, they not only lost their child or children, they also lost their identity because they were literally no longer a mom or a dad. Oh, yeah. I and think of that. Picture yourself being in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, or whatever age, and all of a sudden you're, you don't even have that label anymore for yourself. You're not a mom or a dad. I can imagine that's pretty devastating. And uh, if it's your, and your only child, and maybe your past childbearing age, or you know, many, many complexities. Of Absolutely. That. Or can't have any more children, or had a vasectomy, or uh, tubal ligation, whatever. Anyway, that's another category. Yeah. But... Uh, our, our work was very delightful and joyous to do and very uplifting. And uh, that's what, what I think came out in the book because we keep hearing from people. And the book's been out uh, 17, 18 years. That people are still reading it for the first time and saying how much it, it helps them. I didn't realize the book had been out so long. I read it five years ago when we first mm-hmm. talked to you. But yeah. that's, that's pretty... Uh... I'll go so far as to call it a classic, then, if it's been all it that is, long. It is called a classic. It's pretty by, amazing. Uh, uh, and whatnot, because uh, it was the first book. We literally named the field of research. We defined it, and we wrote the book, Hello from Heaven, which founded it. Wow. Electrographic Communication, or ADC. And on Facebook, and I don't do much of this uh, social media, mm-hmm. but on Facebook there are quite a few groups that use the word ADC in them because there there are different groups of people who are bereaved, mm. and they and this all stemmed from uh, from the Guggenheims. I, I I don't want to take credit for all that. Some of it came from other books as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, of course, there have been thirty other books, at least that I know of, that oh, absolutely have been written on this about this topic. So no, I can't. And I, it wouldn't be right. To you lit the it. spark, let's say. Well, you lit um, the spark. We, 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 ours was the first, which inspired uh, many of the others. There you go. Some uh, of which acknowledged us, and some never heard of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the interesting part. Uh, you know, I this thing really came onto my radar five years ago, but in the ensuing years, I've been amazed at how big the ADC thing has gotten. Uh, it seems like people are really waking up to this, and I, I think maybe, you know, we've we've sort of talked about the delineation between the supernatural stuff and the and the ADCs. And I think maybe the the explosion of the supernatural, that's kind of backed off a little bit as far as the ghostly stuff. I mean, it's, it's still very popular, but I think people are a little bit more jaded about it. And now you're seeing the ADC kind of pick up momentum because it seems, like I said before, a little bit more reasonable idea of, uh, you know, some kind of communication with the other side. Well, I, I think that there's an openness... And that 
many, many people, because of the baby boomers, baby boomers are people who are dealing with death for the first time. They're dealing with their parents aging and having to put them into nursing homes or assisted living homes or whatever, or they're dealing with the death of their parents. And who's next? Me. <laughs> when we were younger, it used to be grandma and grandpa. And then mom and dad. Now it's me. Oh, gee, you're depressing me now. <laughs> no, but I'm saying. No, you're absolutely it, right. It has become more personal up front for us, number one. With, number one, we have to deal with it because the, the, the population is aging. Um, that's part of it. Uh, part of it is the whole supernatural thing is like one pathway and this and uh, near-death experiences and other things like that, angel communications and orbs and whatnot are a different pathway. Mm. And people are, I don't want to upset anybody, but many ministers do not feel comfortable speaking about life after death. And they don't have sermons in their churches or synagogues or whatever about life after death. Right, right. And nor do they have classes on it off to the side either. And many of them have not been trained in, in handling grief. And uh, so the people are looking for something alternative. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her writings, along with that of uh, hospice, has really changed things more than anything else, I'd say, because that's a whole new institution which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work inspired. Uh, it originated, started in, in England, but it came here because of Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, virtually not every, only every city, but even largest town has a hospice these days. Oh yeah, and and uh, the, the hospice nurses, the hospice counselors, are some of the most loving, the, the, the enlightened people in the world because they hear about death and deal with death all the time, and have to work it through for themselves. And in the process of opening up and everything, they hear stories from their patients as they're dying. Oh yeah, I'm well, sure they hear just some of the most amazing stuff. Uh, that's that, true. That that you, anyone's uh, ever heard. Imagine, and uh, some have written books about it and whatnot. And uh, they themselves have a lot of ADCs with their patients, even, or, or later on family members as well, and mm. things like this. So a lot of things have shifted in the last 25 years or so, uh, I would say, yeah, 40 years. And uh, the graduates or the dropouts of, of conventional churches, religions, are looking for something alternative. Unfortunately, you go into most bookstores, it's under the, the horrible words, New Age. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And that's where you find everything. It's the tarot cards and the I Ching and uh, hypnosis and after-death communication, near-death experiences, uh, uh, you know, the Vedanta. I mean, it's all lumped together. Like, And they could hang a sign over it that just says weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's where these books are, including ours. But uh, the only exception to that is more recently, some people, there's like usually a Christian sections as well, and mm. sometimes Christian inspirational sections. And uh, Mary Neal, Dr. Mary Neal, she's an orthopedic surgeon, she had a near-death experience, as well as uh, several other books, uh, two children, and several other people have had near-death experiences who are Christians, and their books, which were not published until a few years ago, are now in their sections. And they're being bought and uh, disseminated. And those people are very interested in all, all this material uh, and much more open as a result. Yeah, yeah. Well, like so, I said, just even in the uh, 
you know, in the paranormal community, it seems yeah. like it's getting more uh, more play than it has in a long time. So mm-hmm. it's good. Yeah. It's and, good. And people are just accepting them as ordinary experience. Exactly. Uh, That's not yeah. parapsychological, yeah. not paranormal, not para anything. Because as soon as you say these words, then you make it other than. You see? Ah, yeah. I never thought of it that you way. Don't, yeah. You don't accept it as ordinary. Yeah. Meaning an ordinary part of life. So, like in our work, we conservatively said 20% of the population have had an ADC. But that's 20% of 300 million people. That's 60 million people. Polls show it's higher than 40%. That makes it 125 million people, roughly, which is more than a third. And that includes people who never have never had anybody close to them die yet, yet. No. So, but if you deal with the people who are bereaved, these numbers are much higher. And like two thirds of all widows or widowers hear from their deceased spouse. Two thirds. Now you're way up in, in numbers and percentages. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. And uh, things like this. The one you could say, well, they're just imagining it. They're just, you know, grieving. No, it's not that. They're learning some cases. They're learning things they didn't know before. Right, right. Because when we talked earlier uh, in the week to set this up, you, you really wanted to stress that that the ADCs that people write them off as grief-induced hallucinations. But you, uh, you know, you were pretty adamant when we talked on the phone earlier that th- this is not the case. No, no. We see there are six categories in Hello from Heaven that we wanted to, not by us saying it. That it's, I'm not an attorney. And I'm not trying to rebut other people's yeah. beliefs. But we use firsthand cases. Mm-hmm. And of the six categories, the first one we used is where a person has the experience before they learned that their loved one had died. Ah, yeah. you, and I, you and I are on the East Coast. Supposing tonight somebody or one of your listeners, has a loved one who dies on the West Coast, meaning California, Oregon, Washington, mm-hmm. whatever. And that person comes to them and says, thank you for being my friend. I love you. Uh, I value the time we spent together. Uh, I'm going to have to go now. Goodbye. And then they leave. Go. Then tomorrow, after this has occurred, they're, they're thinking, no, why, was, why did so-and-so visit me? What happened? Yeah. And they, by email today, or telephone, you know, cell phone, cell phone messages, whatever. Yeah. Some way, a, a FedEx or whatever. <laughs> whatever. It yeah, is. facts. Facts. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> trying to say it's facts. They learned that their loved one had died in a car accident. I'm not talking about somebody who's lingering with a cancer and expected to die. I'm talking about a sudden death. Mm. They didn't know the person was was anything but in good health. And then they have the contact first, and they learn about it afterwards. Yeah, that to me said they why would they, they wouldn't be bereaved? Exactly. But don't walk around being bereaved before the fact wouldn't make sense. Right, right. That that alone should pretty much uh, okay. Shoot we a have a lot of those. That's a very common category. Yeah. A second one is where you have the experience uh, long after the death. In other words, it's very common to be bereaved or grieving the first one, two, three, four, five years, especially mm-hmm. if it's your child. And in a sense, if it's a child, it's all your life, but not as heavily as in the first several years. Exactly, yeah. But uh, to hear from somebody 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 or more years later, I think the longest after in our book is 33 years later, she is warned to get out of her bedroom and she does, and then a tree in the storm comes crashing down through the roof right across the bed she was laying on beforehand. Oh, boy. You see? Mm-hmm. So there's 
In other words, I look for a story involved, not just a nice little feeling. I'm looking for something a lot more. Exactly. When we did these. Now, well, go ahead. So that's when you have the experience many years later, 10, 20 or more years later. You can't say people are in a state of bereavement or grief-induced hallucinations. Right. It just comes out of nowhere. many years. That's silly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the ones I, I, we, I think we really talked about this a lot uh, on the previous conversation, but I do still find these telephone calls to be the most uh, compelling because it involves, I guess, uh, a smell or a voice or a, or a presence. That involves, like, uh, the physical senses and everything, but, but a telephone call involves electricity and machines. So it's even more, and, and, you know, amazing in a sense. Cause well, uh, since then, it's, uh, physical. We, we don't have them in the book. We have people who have uh, communication via a computer. In mm. other words, it may be an, e- an email message. It may be a message on, on their computer screen. In other words, just a short one. It could be something um, more like would they had pagers. It would be a particular phone number. Right. People get texts nowadays. Uh, and those kinds of things, yeah. So electricity apparently is quite easy to manipulate from from the other side. In mm. other words, those, and my, uh, Judy pointed out, uh, teenage boys were particularly good at it. I'd say teenage boys and men were pretty good at it. And they're the ones who often are able to make garage doors go up and down and appear on TV screens and things like that, have a song come on the radio or on a TV. Interesting. What not? Now you've collected all these cases over the years, uh, yeah. on a completely meta level. Like, where could somebody take those three thousand cases and then run them through anything to to get additional information? You yeah, know what I mean? on a computer you can grind the numbers. Like, do you have the time of like do you have the time and stuff like that for most of them, or any sort of information? We where, have a lot of information. Yeah, yeah. that would be an a interesting lot, project for some. A lot of categories, and uh, there uh, there are people who have uh, who are writing their. For the masters or their uh, doctorate, who 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 do this kind of work, mm. but you and I would not want to read it. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> well, I might want to read an article, not necessarily uh, no, a not book. even an article. That's filled with numbers <laughs> and percentages, plus or minus twenty four point six, plus or minus four uh, percent. Error for. Uh, I think you'd find something uh, of interest out of all that. I won't say so, nothing, but yeah. Uh, well, because like, because I've heard that the uh, you have here in the in the twelve types of ADC, you have uh, twilight experiences. Yes, yeah, that's, a, that's not something we didn't even know we had until we looked at the language, hmm. and that was where people said, just as I was falling asleep, or just as I was waking up, right? I had this experience, and typically when they were waking up. Often, not always, but often, whoever it was that they felt was visiting them would be there when they opened their eyes. And so if it was their father who had died, they'd open their eyes, and there's their dad right next near to their bed or wherever they were sleeping and just be there. And they they sort of a, a two-phase ADC, one, one part while asleep and the other part while awake. Yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of what I was getting at about sort of synthesizing the data in a way. Because I've yeah. heard before that there's sort of this idea that uh, there's like a magic time in in the night, like between like let's say I don't, I've I don't heard know, that I two and know. four a.m. or something crazy. I like don't that know works. that, but yeah. you see the hard. Here's what I do say: uh-huh. the hard part in America is getting hold of somebody. Think about it. You call somebody on the phone. What do you usually get? Voicemail. Yeah. You leave them a message. 
uh, please call me back at, and you wait. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. <laughs> yeah. And then you send an email, and maybe it gets answered, maybe it doesn't. And back and forth, back and forth. We're very hard to get hold of today compared to 50 years ago, believe it or not. It's much harder, even though we have many more ways to do it. Right. There's many more ways to ignore. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. Other than text messages, that's the one that seems to work the fastest and the, the surest, especially between the people who do it, the kids. Yeah, that. yeah. That's a generational thing almost. And then on Twitter is another whole thing, but that's something else. Yeah, let's just not even go there. Uh, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> and and uh, what I would like to say is there were four other categories uh, about why are these real. And uh, one of them is when you learn something, like you're looking for something mm-hmm. and that you, you know exists, like a, a piece of jewelry, some money, or something like that, and then you, but you don't know where it is, and you ask your deceased loved one to reveal it, and they do. Or you learn it during an ADC, actually. They, they tell you during an ADC, look in this drawer or look in the, the trunk outside in the garage or whatever, and then they, you find something of value that you knew existed. However, there's another whole category, uh, very similar to that, where you didn't know something existed. And uh, there, those people are, are told about something. Like, go upstairs to the bureau. This was uh, one example of an elderly couple. Go upstairs to the bureau, and it was an old-fashioned kind. Look in the right, right-hand drawer, the drawer in the little drawer on the right side. Open it up, slide it open. Now, do that, and... Uh, Take the paper out in the drawer and look under the paper, and there you'll find an insurance policy. Oh, wow. And she did. She found a small insurance policy she never knew about. Right. And so how would she, yeah, how would, yeah, there's no way, like, no, Mm-mm. there's no way she would know to look there. So it has no, to I mean, have had some kind of additional push. A house support because we knew there was a exactly. amount of anything. Exactly. Didn't even know it existed. And so there are a whole bunch of those in the in Hello from Heaven. And the one I alluded to before, people who lives were protected or saved by having an ADC. Mm. And uh, the most typical one is while you're driving your car. And I urge you and all your listeners, if you ever have any sense of hearing a voice or having a strong feeling or a nudge from somewhere to stop your car, do it. Or slow down your car. Do it. Yes. Because we have a whole bunch in the book where there, um, a tractor trailer, uh, came around, came, you know, went right through the intersection and would have rammed them to pieces. Yeah. Or this would have happened or that would have happened with right, your right. car. Averting a crisis. And avert, yes, protecting your own life. And, uh, our son would have drowned if I had not heard a voice and, and acted upon it. Right. So, uh, you may feel, now, the, the three saddest people I spoke to, I spoke to three people during that research, who had, had a warning to go outside and do something. And I remember one very well. It was like uh, early evening, and she was told to go outside because they had a house which was like on a small uh, pond, not, not, a, not a big lake or anything, but more of a kind of a pond, small lake, and do that. And, but she didn't. Later on, as it got later, her son was missing. And the sad story, tragic story, was he had gone down to the pond and had jumped off the little P 
tier doc, doc, I guess you call it. Yeah. And while he was a fine swimmer, he was strong, there was no danger. He unfortunately, when he dove in, he hit his head on a stone. Oh, God. And he, and he was unconscious and couldn't swim and drowned. And I spoke to two other women uh, who had had an experience, not the same as that, but who had not acted upon it in some way. Oh, God. And uh, the guilt involved. And there's, I'm sure there's a myriad of people on the other side who didn't listen to the voice and ended up getting hit oh, by yeah. the tractor trailer. We, we all, we, frankly, we've all, we've all done something stupid. Yeah. In our lives. I mean, we've, we've, uh, everything, we've put money in, that invested money in things we shouldn't have. It's like gambling or whatever. Yeah. And on and on and on. All kinds of things, but, yeah. Now, do you think, it, it seems like there's almost the, 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 uh, the journey here of uh, ADC, uh, the phenomenon in, in the public consciousness. It seems like the, the next step is we're on our way in a way to, to, to the, just the overall acceptance of it. It seems like a, a difficult, cause science, there's always going to be this sort of, uh, friction between science and, and something like this. Well, no real okay. way to like, uh, you know, there's no, no scientist is going to go and try and. Well, but you see, they can't. This. And there's a right. reason. Okay. Now, you have to understand what science is and science isn't. Right. Science is excellent, and I don't dispute anything to do with science, in applying it to the physical level of reality. What's physical going on? Matter. Hold on now, Bill. What's what's going on with the dog back there? Can you move He's anywhere? He's barking. I, I, I realize that now. <laughs> Can you move anywhere where we might not, we might not hear him? Or? Move into a different room. Yeah, that'd be great. We're near, we're Science we're near is very end. good okay. for dealing with physical matter and energy. Mm-hmm. Everything from the microscope to the Hubble telescope and all that. But we, they keep trying to apply it to the, there are four different levels of what we call reality. One is the physical. Then we speak about the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual. They keep trying to apply the same rules to the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual. And they don't work that way. Yeah. But they, it's like, I'm going to cram this into the holder no matter what to make it fit. Yeah. And it doesn't. And if science, scientists would just, because in a way it's a religion. Now here's what I mean by that. I agree with you. If you ask people, what religion do you believe in? And you'll say, well, I'll say, I was, or what religion were you raised? And they say, well, I was a Protestant, a Catholic, a Jew, or something else. And today it's many other things. But if we go back 50 years, a Christian and Jewish or something like that. Mm-hmm. But our religion that we all were trained in, I don't care if we're 10 years old or 90 years old, the same religion is science, technology, and materialism. Yeah. That's what we believe in in America. And, and science has done wonders. We have conquered polio. It, we've increased food production. Automobiles are... Oh, they put a man on the moon. Exactly. TV sets. Uh, iPhones, all the toys. Yeah. Everything. It's wonderful for physical phenomena, but it doesn't seem to work for these other fields, especially the spiritual. Mm. And so... If they would just move, and, and the high priests, by the way, are medical doctors and scientists. And if I had been a medical doctor and written a book, the book would have sold many, many times as many copies as it did. Yeah. Because if you look at who has written the, the books about near-death experiences, 
It's medical doctors. They get the publicity from the media. Yeah. And right now it's Evan Alexander with his near-death experience. That's the neurologist, right? He's a neurosurgeon. Okay, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's a medical doctor. And uh, Mary Neal's a medical doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying they shouldn't get recognition, but it shouldn't be just all about science. Because science can't explain most of it. Yeah. Especially in these areas. And if they just say, let's use science for this level of reality and maybe we can observe the others and maybe we can learn some things rather than trying to reduce it to the same things as physical matter. It seems like for most, I'm sure there's probably a, a lot of people in the scientific community that uh, if they're not aware of ADCs, if they became aware of ADCs, they'd actually be on board with it. But it is not going to, yeah. it's just too much. They have they have to worry about tenure and, and, and paying their rent and putting their kids through college. Actually, medical doctor. doctors sometimes do hear about them from their patients and things like that, and some some are open. But it's especially it's the nurses and the counselors at hospice who are the most open. Mm. Yeah, I just mean it's like you're, we're not going to see a, a sea change where people come out and endorse it because they're afraid to so. really... Uh, put their put their no, and also uh, for, I'm not. I don't want to make a harsh distinction here, but a lot of scientists and medical doctors are agnostics, which I have no objection to whatsoever. Yeah, because I've been one myself much of my life. Meaning, I just want to know more. That's all agnostic means. I don't know, and I, I want to read more, learn more, exactly, and then decide. Uh, and some are atheists. And that I have trouble with because it's, it's like saying, uh, I don't believe in all this. Well, that's, that's, whether you believe in it or not doesn't matter because it's still here. <laughs> you know, go look at, go look, go out to the Midwest on a beautiful night and look up at all creation while you're lying on your back and all those points of light and those stars and those galaxies and everything out there and say there isn't something higher than chance that produced this. That's profound, yeah. And that's, you know, that's, it, 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 they can't put it into a formula yet, that's all. Yeah, right. yeah. So They'll keep but, trying, but though. The point <laughs> is the hospice is making a, uh, has a lot of uh, uh, counseling for people who are bereaved, and they include uh, in this information and give out books and information to those, to their clients. Uh, you know, not not the people who are dying, but to, the, to those who have had somebody who died, to, to the survivors. Mm. And so that's a, a big source of information. Yeah, and it seems that way. seems that so way. Well, there is much more acceptance. Right, right, exactly. Well, like you said, it's people people are disengaging it from the paranormal and, and just accepting yeah. it. It's, it. It's easier just to, you know, it's funny because it's, it seems like to most people, like I said, if they never heard of ADCs, once they did hear about it, it would actually probably make more sense to them. I think it's like this thing that people have, something amazing happens to them, but they don't even have a word for it because they don't know about this phenomenon yet. Uh, Ram Dass you know, used to talk about, I forget who he was quoting, but a, a large percentage of people would have some kind of experience in their lifetime that didn't fit in any known category. And it would be a transformative experience and uplifting and amazing and wow and all the rest. And they say it was the most fantastic experience I ever had in my life. 
I sure as hell never want to have another one again as long as I live. Because <laughs> it scares the heck out of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't fit in the categories. Where do I put it? <laughs> Whatever it was. Now, have you, I'm sure you probably have if you got all these cases, but it'd be interesting, it, it, you know, I always, I, I probably have had this conversation with people, but not recently, but, you know, I like the idea of, of like a uh, one person saying to another, well, when I go, I'll come back and let you know. Yeah, many people, it's called a, oh, what the heck, I forgot the, word, the name for it, but it's an agreement that they have. Yeah. Um, letter P, I can't, a pact. A pact. A pact. Whoever goes first, come back and let me know. And uh, many people make that with their best friend or maybe it's a uh, parent and a child or whoever, just two, two people who are curious. Yeah. Loving. And uh, they're often able to fulfill it in some cases. and others, they're still waiting for it. And, and in some cases, they're, they're, they, they get this, but they don't identify it because they're expecting that. <laughs> ah, I see what you're saying, yeah. In other words, they're expecting something momentous. They're expecting to see a chair rise up into the air and float around the living room or something. Yeah. I'm making something silly up. No, exactly. I know you but, mean. But on the other hand, they could feel this incredible sense of love and peace and comfort from Grandma who's telling them, I'm, all f- I'm fine, don't worry about me, go on with your own life. And I started to say earlier, there's two facets of grief. One is the one who died, the other is our sense of loss which is what I call an emotional amputation that people feel when, oh, a, yeah. when a loved one dies. And for when it's a child, it's an amputation that's permanent. I mean, it's it's like a limb being missing, and it's gone. It doesn't come back. Yeah. Even if you have five children and one dies, you still have four, but you, people don't look at it that way. They, they're focused on the one that died. Now you, when we talked the other day, you were saying, you know, that this, the, the, to, for this field to really take another step, you think it needs more media coverage and uh, more. I would love to. One thing that never happened. I'm, I'm, I'm sad for this, not just because of us or anything, but, but, and, and it will come eventually. There has never been a documentary done for television on this topic of after death communication. The closest to it <laughs> was one television show done in. Seattle, Washington, on a Sunday night, and I was on it. The show was about us and our work when we were doing our research, not after the book came out, but before then, right. several years before then. And that was a one-hour TV show with me, I flew out, and several people we had interviewed and some others in the audience, and a very good uh, uh, moderator. Mm-hmm. And it was a one-hour show, and that's the only show, full show that's ever been devoted to this topic that's amazing and but there's it, it, you know I would I want to see somebody come along and do because there's a beautiful show about uh, one about when angels were very big and Patty Duke was the guest uh, speaker or the hostess of it um, uh, angels mysterious messengers and that was a beautiful show and it covered all kinds of different things that happened. Although some of those were ADCs. They didn't intend it to be. Right. I was just going to say, because there's shows like, um, I want to, I think there's a show like, I hate to, I hate to even bring this up, but there's a show I think called, um, like, uh, Celebrity Ghost Stories. Could be. And you see the, you know, if you see a little bit of it, they're almost, you know, there, there are a lot of them are pretty much ADCs. They're not ghost stories. They're like, uh, you know, I woke up and I could smell his favorite cologne or whatever. Right, yeah. You know, and it's like, that's an ADC. That's not a it's ghost story. It's an ADC, story. but it, you see, ghost, 
story, it you you, you, you go for ratings, and it it is a it it sort of it's like fish hooks. It grabs a certain part of the audience. Yeah, and uh, it's a thrill them, and they like that. But, but the, it reels them in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we need we need uh, further education on this and further but delineation. I, I, I would just like to be you know one, and then maybe two or three more shows with live people who've had the experiences uh, there and being uh, interviewed. Absolutely, and, it's and, compelling and other, stuff. Other ones can be recreated and what whatever. Well, and just he, yeah. presented as a field of research, the same way near death experiences have been explored on television. Those who've almost died, gone through a tunnel to the light, encountered uh, deceased loved ones, or a being of light, who they call God or Jesus or whoever, and uh, all kinds of other steps along the way, and then come back. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, to the everyday person on the street, they actually, I'd say, you know, a very good percentage of those people know what a near-death experience is. We need to get the the after-death communication into the vernacular the same way. Well, see, at the most, they estimate about 15 million Americans have had a near-death experience. Oh, boy. Okay, that's if if that many, but say 15 million. And I'm saying conservatively 60 million or four times that have had an ADC. And if you do the other number, other people's numbers, it's eight times that or ten times that, that, that many. So they're small, but you see, uh, near-death experiences are more dramatic in, in that they're, they're longer and they encompass more elements, hmm. whereas uh, these are shorter in duration. I say these are more like telegrams. When people say, well, what did you learn or how long was the message? About 25 words or less generally. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean some people do have several communi- several ADCs with the same loved one, and a few people learn how to have ongoing communication, my thought, telepathically, with a loved one, and they write down what they receive. I'm, 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 I'm amazed by the books I find, and uh, the, I, by widows especially, and how much their deceased husbands have helped them with their recovery from the death and going on to take care of the children and things like that. Some beautiful material out there. Well, it's, uh, like I said before, uh, I really hope that this can continue to grow and, and get more people uh, informed about it. That's really, really what I wanted to do here on the show tonight and get people back reacquainted with uh, Hello from Heaven and, uh, you know, this after-death communication thing because as I, it's frustrating for me as a, as a, I guess you could say, a paranormalist or uh, someone who's involved in the field that that people aren't, able, the mainstream people, the people you talk to at the bar or the people that you work with, they're not, they're not knowledgeable enough yet to make that delineation. So the, the more I can do to help, the better. Yes, well, it is people like you who are making a huge difference because you're giving a voice to people like me to reach people we would never reach otherwise. And we thank you for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to get you back on the show, Bill. Do you have any advice for people in the midst when they have an ADC? You know, what, what should well, they the, do the when The biggest happens? question is, I haven't heard from so-and-so, what can I do? How can I, you know, what what can I do to have one? Because when, they, when they're having one, they're, fi- they're fine, <laughs> usually, almost always. But what I, we tell people to do is learn how to relax, and by that, learn how to meditate. Meditate, meditation is just deep relaxation. Yeah. And you can do it in a chair by yourself, and or you can play some music as in a chair. If you want to make it more dramatic, you make the room dark and light some candles. 
that's fine, or have some aroma, you know, aromas in the room. But whatever it do, it's, it's about relaxing, you know, becoming open, having, letting your mind and your heart become open. Mm-hmm. One of the things I heard recently that's a little you know, controversial, that the, the, the brain, our brain is in our head, but our mind is in our heart. Hmm. Literally, in our heart. Our mind, which is the eternal part of us. The brain dies when the body dies, but the heart continues. Anyway. Where did you uh, hear that? Uh, at a conference I went to. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that, you experience. know, you were talking about science trying to wrap its arms around this, and that, that's one of the things I think that they're still struggling with, you know, consciousness and the mind oh, yeah. and where self-identity actually resides and how it works. They, they, right. they have no idea about any of that stuff. But anyway, it's, it's learning how to, uh, and one woman wanted desperately to hear from her daughter. Her daughter had been killed in an automobile, in a plane accident, uh, in Europe. She was a stewardess at a, a foreign airline. And the plane went down and she died. And this woman, uh, went and took a course. I think she practically got a, a paid a man privately to teach her how to meditate. And she learned in just a matter of, just a few weeks how to meditate very deeply and daily she would spend hours at, at meditate, a meditative level talking with her deceased daughter. So finally the daughter said to her, Mom, I can't keep coming back to do this. I have my own life to go on with. I have to leave. Let me go. Goodbye. Hmm. And she did. That's the other side of it. Yeah. Uh, um, Interesting. It, it's hard to let go uh, of somebody we love. It certainly is. It's uh, I've been through my own grieving process, and it's uh, it's a challenge, that's for sure. By the way, since you know, I last spoke to you, my um, younger daughter, who is age 47, named it Janet, she took her own life a little about two and a half years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, she had been on meds of all kinds, and uh, she met a man who was very strong or charismatic or something who convinced her she didn't need any of her medications. And she went off everything at once, oh, God. which is about the fastest way you can induce severe depression. Yeah, because she was bipolar and other things. And uh, she took one out. And one of the things I'm not into gun control in an active way, but there, I don't think somebody should just because she went to a Walmart in Santa Fe, New Mexico, bought a handgun that morning and used it early that afternoon. Oh God! And she had had a history of emotional dis difficulties yeah anyway uh i frankly i've heard from her several times uh i have writings from her and i saw her in a vision and i saw her dancing and singing oh wow. i was very happy so i know these are very very powerful healing experiences which i've shared with her mother and they've helped her as well and other family members wow well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, I know it's, uh, I'm sure it's difficult, so. Actually, it's joyous. Yeah. For me. It's, uh. I can imagine, yeah. For, for, for me, it's not a question of believing their, their life continues beyond death. At this point, it's a knowing. Yeah. Uh, just like I'm sitting here with a phone in my hand, I, I, I know I'm doing it. Yeah. And life continues. Uh, Missing my daughter or something else, yes. Hmm. But uh, she is literally happier there than here. I, I feel uplifted just talking to you. It's a very uplifting subject. Uh, I think it eases some of the trepidation about death. 
when yeah. you, the more you learn about these after-death communication experiences, uh, it makes me feel a lot better about things. What you do when you read these books and get into all these things, I've been into them for many years now, is you begin seeing, well, why am I here to begin with? And your sense of self-identity changes and purpose changes. Hmm. And you begin to see life as a school, as a university, so to speak, of courses or lessons to be learned. And mostly about love and compassion, forgiveness, things, very common stuff. Yeah. And uh, you become a little bit more gentle in your ways, one's ways, toward other people and more more serving, more giving. And it comes down to that. And it's just not, I'm not saying you go off and become Mother Teresa, but you, you open the door for somebody at a supermarket. You can carry a package out, put it in their car. You smile at somebody. Hmm. You give somebody two bucks who is an amputee or, you know, homeless or whatever. Right, right. Pay it forward. I love that phrase in that movie, pay it forward. Yes, exactly. And and then you start seeing life differently and you choose, make different choices. I mean, I still love football. I watch NFL football. I can every (laughs) game I can. It doesn't mean I'm living a hermitage somewhere. I don't. Exactly, or, yeah. I live a normal, pretty normal life. And uh, I'm single. I'd love to date women and meet, meet new women and stuff. So, But the spiritual is, oh, is very joyous. It sounds like you're having a good time down there, Bill. Basically, yes. Sounds yes. good. I'm envious. Now, you've been doing this for 25 years. Uh, you know, we talked about this on the show. Uh, we, well, we talked about this before we were setting things up. You know, you, you, you've had quite the long career. And, it, you know, another generation of people is coming along to carry the torch of the ADC research. So as, uh, you know, I'm going to make you blush here, but as a titan of this of this study, of a titan of looking at this phenomenon, you know, what advice do you have for the for the new people coming up who are going to be carrying this into the future? What, what would you like to see them do with the research into after-death communications going forward? I would like to, uh, the, the, the biggest, most important thing would be having some TV documentaries, mm-hmm. documentaries for TV. Making a documentary and then trying to sell that uh, goes nowhere. At the most, you, you wind up showing it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, Tom Shadyak, there's a, there's a fantastic one called I Am, and he was the director of a whole bunch of movies of uh, different people. I can't, can't think of their name. Yeah, the name right sounds now. familiar, yeah. Uh, he's a, he was a Hollywood director who made all kinds of money. I Am is a great uh, DVD. But uh, you don't sell that many copies of anything on Amazon or elsewhere. Uh, but uh, if it's on a TV show, you'll watch, people will, will watch it. So that's number one. Number two, there are many other types of experiences uh, we have in our files that um, I may do something with. Uh, my son is going to come work with me at the end of the month. Oh, awesome. Uh, my middle son, Chris. And uh, we have experiences. Uh, it's very common for a dying person to look up and report seeing uh, relatives or friends who have died ahead of them. We have, okay, and they, that's called deathbed visions. That's a very old, old category. goes back decades, many decades. But we have people who were also present, whether it was family members or and friends or whether they were staff people from the hospice or hospital. We have people who also saw the ones who came for the person who was dying. Yeah. We call those bedside experiences. Interesting. 
a huge category, and anybody can find these who hangs out with hospice people, is seeing the soul leave the, the body. Mm. We have many of those in our files. And uh, whether it's one person or a group of people, they'll see a, something like a little mist coming out of the top of the head yeah. or out of the center of the chest, and it forms into the likeness of the, of the body that just died. Just right after the death, and uh, and there's one or two way communication sometimes, and then that person leaves, sort of like Superman, up through the roof or out through the window. Yeah. Well, well see, I'm sure you, uh, I'm sure that was probably one of the six that you. I kind of cut you off earlier, but I'm sure that was one of the six in a way. You need multiple witnesses. I mean, how can you, yeah. how, how can you be a skeptic when there's, uh, yeah, you know, multiple have a, witnesses? A whole chapter in Hello from Heaven. Uh, where two or more people at the same time, the same place, had the same experience or a similar one. Right. So, and, and a very important one I, I didn't mention. I wanted, I'd like mm-hmm. to, yeah. uh, because suicide is an uh, increasing phenomenon in our society because of soldiers, boys and girls, young. I say boys and girls; they're very young, coming back from these countries, Iraq. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Young uh, men and women. Yeah. Uh, Afghanistan and taking their own lives because they were in combat and they saw things they never expected to. They they experienced things they never expected to. The flashbacks are horrendous. It's like LSD flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a whole chapter of people who were suicidal and were planning to on suicide when a loved one came to them at just the right time, deceased loved one came to them just the right time and said or did something which convinced them not to take their own life. Wow. And that's one thing I would not want a psychologist to speak to one of these people and say, oh, you just imagined that. Yeah, yeah. Because if you debunked that for them and they were in that position again, you're taking away their lifeline and they'll just go ahead. Yeah, their whole world could fall apart. You don't want to do that. Yeah. So that's why these judgmental statements, oh, that's just an hallucination, uh, sometimes can really undermine people hmm. and two of the people were in the act of taking their life when they had an ADC and did not do so and obviously all those people were still alive later or we could not have interv- interviewed them exactly yeah yeah I, can, I, I I'm fascinated by this topic I'm so glad I got back in touch with you it's to, a very positive one because it. it's modern day that's what behind it is modern day evidence on a very large scale modern day evidence for life after death yeah it's a, the, the biggest scale that I, it's the most common experience, spiritual experience that I know of. And uh, 125 million or more people have had one in America alone. And in other countries, I, we didn't say this, it's so common people don't, they'll have the experience at night, talk about it with their friends the next day. And it's part of their their life. Right, right. Again, like you said, you're stripping the power power apart from the paranormal element. In other words, it's part of their culture Mm -hmm. to accept things like this. But we're so rational and scientific about all our teaching and believing, we don't accept. Whereas in other parts of the world, they do accept. And that makes a a different way of living, different way of seeing, different way of understanding. Yeah, yeah. And we say, well, they're ignorant. Well, you know, look at all those people in India, how poor they are. Well, they may be poor physically in terms of material wealth, but they have great wealth spiritually and philosophically and things like that. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an odd in situation where America is sort of uh, 
foisted its cultural baggage onto the world in a lot of ways, whether it's spirituality or sex or all kinds of things. The the right way, the the, the enlightened way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, like I said, I'm I'm just absolutely thrilled that uh, we got you back here on the show to talk about this stuff. And and, and I'm really really happy with this conversation because I didn't want to do a rehash of our first conversation. I felt like this was a, a completely fresh look at it, and folks should definitely check out the original first interview we did way back in Season 3 for an even more in-depth look at after-death communication. That's where we go over the 12 types uh, significantly, look at those different types, and really dig into some of the other stuff involved with ADCs. This was more of a catch-up and uh, touch base here with Bill Guggenheim, and I'm th- absolutely thrilled with this conversation. I loved it, Bill. And I uh, really The way I like to end, the way our book mm-hmm. ends, and the way a, a number of other writings I've done are ending now, is the message we, Judy and I, want to convey is that life and love are eternal. There you life go. and love are eternal. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, my gratitude to you, sir, for coming back on the show and uh, rekindling this conversation is eternal as well. So thank you so much, and best of luck with your future projects. Let me know what's coming up, and, uh, you know, let's stay in touch, buddy. Okay. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed being a guest on your show again. It's been a real pleasure. Thus concludes the first half of this edition of BOA Audio Season 8, featuring Bill Guggenheim. Enormous thanks to Bill for coming back on the show and refreshing all of the BOA audio listeners and myself on the ADC phenomenon. You can find out more from Bill at the website www.after-death.com. Don't forget the hyphen, folks, after-death.com. And once again, the book is Hello from Heaven an iconic piece of esoteric literature that set the stage for ADC research. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Now let's move on to the latter half of this edition of BOA Audio as we welcome ADC experiencer Dr. Annie Kagan, who is going to talk about being contacted by her late brother, who in turn prompted her to write the book The Afterlife of Billy Fingers, which chronicled her experience and his story. Annie is going to reflect on the very first moment that her brother contacted her from beyond the grave, as well as reveal the logistics of this communication. She'll muse about the challenges she faced upon receiving these communications, and how she wrestled with how to share them with others, and what they may mean for her. We'll also discuss how her story is an incredibly unique experience in the pantheon of ADC cases, and insights into the afterlife which were imparted to Annie by her late brother. Altogether, folks, this is a remarkable story unlike anything we have explored on the program before. And in light of that, Please allow me to give you a little bit of background on Dr. Annie Kagan. Annie Kagan began writing songs at the age of 14. At 15, she was signed by a producer from Columbia Records. At 16, she was performing in New York City cafes and clubs. After 10 years as a songwriter and performer, Annie returned to college, graduating with honors, and became a doctor of chiropractics, 
with a successful private practice on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Addicted to Eastern spiritual traditions, Annie studied yoga and pursued an intense meditation practice. Following her inner voice, she left her career as a doctor and abandoned her hectic city life in search of serenity in a small house by the bay on the tip of Long Island. When her brother Billy died unexpectedly and began speaking to her from the afterlife, her future took a surprising turn. She has masterfully combined her talents as a lyricist, performer, and healer in order to touch the lives of others with Billy's communications from the other side in her debut book, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. Her website is www.theafterlifeofbillyfingers.com. Pretty simple, all one word, theafterlifeofbillyfingers.com. Check it out. And with that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was also recorded on October 18th, 2013. Dr. Annie Kagan, talking about the afterlife of Billy Fingers on BOA Audio, Season 8. Ladies and gentlemen, we continue onward here with our discussion on after-death communications, ADCs, and with a real emphasis on the C part in that, the communication, because our guest now is Dr. Annie Kagan. She's the author of the book, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. It's a fascinating story. It's a remarkable experience, and as I said, uh, we're really... Um, going to focus on the communication aspect of it. You just heard from Bill Guggenheim looking at the phenomena as a whole. Now we're going to really hone in on one specific and really amazing story of after-death communication, and it is told, as I said, in the riveting story, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. Dr. Andy Kagan, welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Tim. Now, we generally start out just to get people up to speed, you know, give me the bio, the background, who is Dr. Annie Kagan, and, uh, you know, it's kind of funny, with some folks, it's, you know, how did you get interested in UFOs, or how did you get interested in Bigfoot, you, you, you kind of had this story thrust upon you. You, you, you know, so I guess tell us a little bit about you personally, and then right. how this began. That's a good way to put it. Thrust upon me was, <laughs> was kind of how it felt. Well, I was uh, living in New York City. I was a chiropractor, and after many years, maybe being in practice after eight years, I began to find being a doctor quite stressful. I've always been a very empathetic person, and I started to feel the pain of my patients a little bit too much. So I wanted to remedy the situation, and I I looked around and uh, actually a wonderful meditation technique kind of found me and to my amazement I began meditating several hours a day really. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> a lot, in, yeah. In, but, but, but instead of making my practice easier, my, my chiropractic practice, I actually became hypersensitive from the meditation, and now I even felt more when I was going to work, and it became harder. Oh. And, and I started to like get headaches at work, and at the same time, New York City, which is where I always lived, became really overwhelming for me because I was so sensitive, the, the noise, the peace, and I just 
decided that I needed to move. Yeah. And I sold my practice. I sold what I had, and and I bought um, a really small house by the bay on Long Island, and then I went back to writing music, which is something I had done as a kid and into my early 20s. Then my brother um, died unexpectedly, and... Actually, three weeks later, he, he he began speaking to me from the afterlife, asking me to write it all down, and um, I became an author. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you kind of caught yourself as you were sort of recounting it. It's it's like you almost have to – people need to open their minds to this that this happened. You know, it's kind of like it's, – it's an amazing thing even to say, I'm sure, uh, what what happened to you. So – I guess. It is. Yeah, go ahead. You know, and also I guess when I want to encourage people because, of course, when all of this was happening to me, it didn't feel like a happy thing. It felt like things were kind of falling apart, but then they kind of reconstructed themselves. So I guess, you know, I'm trying to say, wow, you know, sometimes your life just takes you to places that are completely unexpected mm. and hopefully it all turns out for the good, like it did with me. Exactly. Okay, so I suppose instead of really, I would ask you for a thumbnail on the afterlife of Billy Fingers, but we're really going to sort of dig into your story in and of itself. I don't want you to have to tell the, <laughs> the whole story here at the very beginning. So I guess take us to the first moment when this all began, when you first heard the communication and what it was to get people sort of up to speed with the story. Yes. My brother was actually um, hit by a car and killed unexpectedly, and I was very, very grief-stricken, could barely get out of bed, could barely function. And then three weeks after he died, it was sunrise, and I was kind of in that half-awake, half-dreaming state, and I, I heard his voice really clearly outside of my head as if there was kind of like a little hole in the ceiling and he was talking to me and he's like, Annie, it's me, it's Billy, get up, get up, it's me, it's really me. And uh, at first I thought, oh, I'm having a dream. And I think I said out loud, maybe just in my mind, oh, Billy, you're dead, you know, you, yeah. you can't be here. And he's like, no, no, it, it, it's really me. Get up and go get a notebook. And I open my eyes and I'm walking across the floor and I'm realizing I'm not asleep. I'm awake. And he's still talking to me. <laughs> and he starts describing this phenomenally beautiful uh, dimension that he's in where everything is love and kindness and light and he's being protected by invisible higher beings. And as he's speaking to me, the atmosphere of his world is kind of just flowing right into me. And instead of grief-stricken, I'm feeling pretty euphoric. And then he, you know, promised that death wasn't as serious as, as we all think it is, that it couldn't be better, as 
he would say, and uh, that we would meet again. And that was the beginning of this very unexpected, strange adventure. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's Unexpected definitely is the word. It's strange for sure. It's, uh, I'm sure at first you must have been, I mean, how long, I guess this is a good way to put it, because if it happened to me, I don't know how, how long it would take me to actually sort of wrap my mind around it. I'm sure there was kind of a struggle within you where you were like, maybe I'm just depressed, maybe this, maybe that, maybe I'm sick, maybe, you know what I mean? I, oh, I absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, while the thing is, Tim, while it's happening, the energy is so good, and you're you're not really in your mind. You're in like a more cosmic part of yourself. Right, right. Up. Sounds like there's something going on. Man. Yeah, yeah. And so while it's going on, you're not really questioning it. Mm. But then later, when he leaves and the energy gets more normal, you say, "Oh, come on! I, I, you know, I'm just somehow I don't know how, but I'm making this up so I could feel." better about his death and then I'm like you know next time if he comes again I'm going to be really scientific I'm going to not flow away in the energy I'm going to keep this book near me (laughs) it's like like very 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 determined to you know kind of be scientific about it and um, the subtitle of the book is how my bad boy brother proved to me there's life after death. So one of the important things that happened along with his, shall we say, taking me on a tour of the afterlife is he gave me what your your guest Bill Guggenheim calls evidentiary after death communications, which means he gave, he gave me information that I couldn't possibly know that that proved to be true time after time. Things about my friends I didn't know, things about people I would meet I didn't know. Mm. And really, those were the things that convinced me that I wasn't imagining it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. For the quasi-skeptical listener in the audience, give, give, me, uh, give me an example of this proof uh, that, that you, know, you think proved this to be solid. Right. You know, because you, well, you, you hear the people listening who are like, well, she didn't say anything, so, you know, right. so let's, let's, let's like, let, let them get their get their piece of the pie. Well, I'll give you a funny little one. Okay. Um, you know, and they escalated, and I don't want to spoil the book. Absolutely the book, not. Yeah, we don't know, want to spoil it. You know, the book's kind of a thriller. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, you never know what's happening next, but like one of the early ones, I had a friend called Tex. First of all, I hardly told anybody that my brother was talking to me. It was a big, big, big secret. Mm-hmm. But I told a few people, and my friend Tex was one of them. So I'm... Um, I'm making lunch. One day I'm in the kitchen, and all of a sudden I hear Billy talking to me from the ceiling, and he goes, call Tex and tell her, show me the money. I'm like, what? (laughs) What is this? That's, like, ridiculous. And, you know, you have to understand, he's my brother, so it's not like he's some high spirit that I'm afraid of, you know. So I would argue with him, and I'd be like, you know, that's too stupid. And he'd go, no, 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 call her right now. So Tex has a good sense of humor. I called her, and I said, I know this sounds really crazy, but Billy says, Show me the money. Does that mean anything to you? And she starts laughing. She goes, oh, my God. Like, what? What? 
And she said, well, this morning, because she knew about Billy, when she took her dog for a walk, she went by the water and she was looking up at the sky and she said, okay, Billy, if you're real, give me a sign. And she's a writer, so she came home and she took a shower and she told me she had been thinking about her screenplay after she got out of the shower and she was kind of dancing around in the mirror like the scene from Jerry Maguire and going, show me the money, show me the money, show me the money. And then, <laughs> and then she gets out and I call her and I say, show me the money. <laughs> So, you know, she took that as a sign that she asked for. I mean, how could I possibly know that? Right, right. You know, so it was, and he did it in really funny little clue clue ways. Like he'd, you know, he'd tell me something that I had no idea what it meant, and he'd send me to somebody, and then they'd go, oh, this is what it means. Like another one with text was um, he mentioned a name to me that I didn't know. I'm like, well, who is who is Patty Malone? And it turns out it was her great-grandfather. So, you know, I had never been psychic before, and um, all of those things just kind of, every time it happened, I would get like a chill. Yeah. And I would feel like, oh, my God, this is real. My brother is really talking to me from another dimension. So, you know, even you talk about skeptics, but while I was going through the whole experience, I was skeptical myself. Right, right. Exactly, yeah. You got to, yeah. I can totally see that because I would be the same way. Even as you're going through it, you're like this. Every time, every time something even more unbelievable happens, your your mind gets even further blown. It's it's Now, did he... Clearly, like there, we talk with Bill. You know, it's kind of part of the idea is sort of like they, the people on the other side, they want to let you know you're they're okay, that they've passed yeah. on and everything. But it seems like there was a greater mission here, uh, you know, behind what Billy's doing because beyond the first, he could have just come back and been like, "Hey, I'm fine. Thanks for everything." Yeah, on your life, but he had a mission involved, right? Yes, and I. I don't think that this will spoil it, but he did send me on kind of a treasure hunt for different things. And one of the things that I, that he led me to was these journals that he wrote like in the last years of his life. And my mind was completely blown to see that he wrote that he really wanted to write a book that would help people spiritually. Hmm. And the fact that he did it after he died was really quite amazing. And some of the things that he wrote in the journal that I had never seen were things that he was telling me now, yeah, like certain phrases. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because... The book's pretty popular, and I get letters all the time, and we have, like, a really active Facebook page. And people feel, a lot of people feel like Billy is kind of around them when they're reading the book, hmm. and they have, like, different spiritual experiences, and they feel him because, in a way, he's not the typical um He's not the typical person you would expect to really be giving you an expanded spiritual vision because, you know, I call him my bad boy brother because he did have 
a lot of problems during his life on earth. He had addiction problems. He was not somebody who was really great at life. He wasn't, you know, super successful at something. He was, he was just a very loving, intelligent person who had difficulties. And I think that a lot of the things that he says are help other people who have difficulties. He's not, you know, painting life on earth as just this very rosy thing that's easy. Right, right. Yeah, I noticed that in the book. He was uh, he was trying to kind of explain to you that you have to go through these difficult times. That it's not that's the whole point of being here is to sort of get through this stuff. Yes, and also I think for me because he was the bad boy and I was kind of the good girl, it was very important to kind of accept the shadow part of life, which is something I'm the kind of person who would always wait for everything to be perfect before I could be happy. Yeah. And he's kind of taught me, no, no, you know, you could enjoy yourself anyway. It's like that's the nature of life on earth. It doesn't mean that you've done something wrong or you're being punished. It's just life is, you know, it's all kinds of shades and colors and experience, and you can live them all. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, what, what's really interesting about this story in this case, I guess we could call it if we're going to get kind of scientific about it, is that yeah. – you know, we have an instance, you hear these stories about the near-death experiences, and the people always come back. I think Billy mentioned in the book, uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I guess since you described what he said, I guess he did say it. Um, I tripped myself up there, but uh, he kind of mentioned in the book, you know, those people have a round-trip ticket, and it seems like he had just the one-way yeah. trip. So yeah. that, that's a really unique an invaluable perspective, um, you know, and again, without, I don't want you to give away the, the contents of the book, but tell us, through millennia now, people have wondered what happens when you die, and this is a pretty good indicator of what may happen when you die. So let's uh, fill them in a little bit on that. Oh, yeah. Well, what I really love is, you know, that the after-death communication begins where the near-death experience ends, but they really, really support each other. Mm-hmm. One of the main differences is that people who have near-death experiences are remembering their experiences now that they're back on the other side. So they kind of are experiencing it through their own belief filters and and that kind of thing. Billy, if you can, you know, wrap your mind around it, if you read the book and you could see that the proofs are, you know, pretty amazing, and if you could, like, help, let that help you suspend judgment he's there he's not remembering it he's in the moment and he's reporting in great detail right what's happening to him now the really interesting thing that i love because uh dr raymond moody wrote wrote the forward to my book and he's the one who actually coined the near-death experience Mm -hmm. and um you know, he told me that today in, in, in this day and age, because there are so many medical ways of reviving people, that the near-death experience is very, very popular. But in ancient times, like the ancient Greeks were very, very into 
visiting the other side and bringing back information. And most of the beliefs really came from after-death communications in those days, not so much near-death experiences. And if you look across all cultures through all time, there was always a belief in the afterlife. And it is it is now seen that a lot of those beliefs came because it's actually quite natural to have these experiences. Yeah, absolutely. You're right on there. That's kind of what Bill and I were talking about, too. It's uh, th- This thing is far more normal than paranormal, and it seems, uh, you know, these after-death communications are becoming more and more generally accepted as you can't really put your finger on it. You can't kind of, like, put it in a box, but you kind of have a feeling that it's just something that happens. Well, that's one of the things I'd like to encourage people because it's something that you that you sense, of course, Billy was was writing the book for a larger audience, but but let's take ex, uh, the example of my friend who's a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, and people talk to me now. They tell me all kinds of stories now that I wrote the book that they never told me before. Oh yeah, you know? we'll, we'll get into some of those. In a yeah. <laughs> so you know, he said to me that he'll go outside when he's having a hard day and he'll see a butterfly you know, the orange and black, beautiful monarch butterflies. And he said he he just knows it's a messenger from his father. He doesn't know why he knows. The butterfly, of course, doesn't it doesn't talk to him. But he feels it. He knows it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is my dad, dad or my dad's messenger. That's what I believe. And he feels better. And people feel these things. They have these intuitive hits that, oh, my God, you know, that little bird, it has something to do with with my mother. Right. And, you know, but then it's so easy to really talk yourself out of it. Like, oh, you know, why would I think that? But I think if you open up and let yourself... Go with the experience. You'll have more experiences. Mm, yeah. Got to open yourself up to it. Otherwise, we, we, yeah, we, I'm, I'm chuckling. We were talking about this with the sort of the idea that you need to, if you hear a voice, the idea of the stories about people who hear, you know, uh, advice in instances which, which avert a crisis, you know, like you stop your car or else you might get hit by a car, you know, that kind of thing is... The people who don't listen to that are the ones we don't have the stories from because they don't make it. Yes, it's true. I heard a story um, from someone I know who never mentioned it to me before, and then he read my book, and he said, you know, he used to live in uh, Puerto Rico, and his mother died when he was very young, and he never knew his father, and he was growing up in kind of like a gang world, and it was kind of dangerous, and... One day, he was going to go into a house, and he heard his mother's voice say, don't go into that house. And he he was surprised, and but he listened to it, and people in that house got killed. Oh, boy. And it changed his whole life. He, he, he started to live a whole different kind of life. So, yeah, it's good to listen to those 
to those messages that we sometimes people hear it in their head, sometimes they feel it in their heart. You know, it's different for everybody. Hmm. Now, looking at the logistics of all this, did you were you the only one who heard from Billy? Because I know you mentioned in the book that your ex-husband was really tight with him uh, and kept up with him right up until he died. I mean, did he ever get any sort of messages, or did any any other uh, people hear from him at all? Or was it just a, a communication to you? Only through me, but other people have felt his presence and felt his help. I had um, a girlfriend who was going through a very difficult legal battle, and she had to testify in court. And she was really, really scared. And he said, you know, tell her I'll be there. (laughs) And she said, well, you know, when she got in the witness position, because it's not really a stand, um, she really felt him, like, behind her, and she wasn't afraid at all. So people have kind of felt him really strongly but not heard him. Okay. All right. I'm trying to kind of purposely avoid the overall narrative of the book so we don't give away too much. So, <laughs> no, it's okay. You can ask whatever you want. <laughs> I just won't answer. <laughs> ah, there you go. There you go. You know, I want I, I want the audience to understand that it's only because we don't want to spoil it. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, there's no... Because there's so work. many surprising things. Exactly. You know, because for me, it was like a mystery. It was like he... Is he real? Does the soul exist? You know, is this all, you know, what's going on? And so I wanted to create the book in such a way so that the reader also went along with me on this mysterious journey. Hmm. Did the communication change over time? Did he did he intimate oh, yes. that, you know, his time was limited, that this was a window of opportunity that he had to take advantage of? You know, detail that a little bit. Okay, well, at first I heard him outside of my head very clearly. And then, you know, there would be times like, and then he would go away for a while and I thought he was gone. Hmm. But then he would, like, reappear. So then um, he would appear in the morning like I would see, like, a an orb of light on my ceiling, and I would really, really focus on it, and then I could only hear him. But then when I heard him, and this is a very hard thing to to describe, it was almost like silently I heard him. It's like I tuned in to, like, I turned on a radio, I turned on a station, and then I could hear him. And then there were times, very few times, but there were times I could see him as well. Oh, wow. And those are times he was just really kind of like joking around with me. (laughs) (laughs) Making fun of me because you have to understand, like, in my spiritual practice, in my spiritual path, one of the main rules is you never talk about your spiritual experiences. Right. You never talk about... You know, what happens to you in meditation, it's all very private. So then my bad boy brother shows up, and he's like, well, I'm telling you all this stuff, and I want you to put it in a book. And I'm like, no, that's not really what I've been taught that I'm supposed to do. So there was this constant struggle of me being really afraid and him 
kind of making fun of me and saying, you know, this is not all so serious. So there was, you know, so he would fool around with me a lot. Like one time, the first time I ever saw him, he was like being, he was like being a bad boy angel. So, I mean, and the way I saw him was very, very transparent and kind of like wavy, but he had like, you know, a book in his hands and he had like a crooked halo on his head and he was making like faces like imitating <laughs> imitating an angel which is just this kind of thing he would do when he was alive like you know make fun of things and over exaggerate and it was his way of saying oh come on you know lighten up yeah. <laughs> that's one of his biggest messages is lighten up <laughs> Now, did you experience any, now you said that, you know, you tried to keep this kind of under wraps, but did you experience any blowback from people who just couldn't handle this experience that you were having? You know, it's strange, but I really didn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, I didn't tell a lot of people. That was, you know, one way I controlled it. And, um... I mean, sometimes now I get it, but very rarely. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people get angry because I think that the people that get the most angry, and there's only been a couple, is because they don't understand why they don't get, you know, like why right. it happened to me. Exactly. Yeah. Like, why is this happening to you? I don't believe her. You know, she's making this up or something like that. And, you know, it's kind of like I want to say, well, you don't understand, like, how hard this was. Like, you know, the book is kind of easy breezy because it's a book and I wanted people to enjoy it. But, you know, you have to go into isolation. You have to meditate three hours a day. You have to give up seeing people. Like, you know, there were a lot of difficult requirements that, that I had to do. So, you know, I guess if most people did something like that then they would have this kind of trip but it but it wasn't an easy it wasn't an easy thing and it wasn't something that you know and and you had to be like really isolated because my house is really isolated in the woods i i never could have had this happen to me in the city why do you think that's the case i'm confused because it seems it it seems like you're at the at the mercy and the whim of billy anyway why why did it require all this meditation well, I did all this meditation beforehand. Like one of the things that he talks about is that everybody has like a book of life mm-hmm. with a blueprint of their life. There's a lot of freedom inside the blueprint, but there's a blueprint of their life. And I feel like, you know, everything led me to this little house where I was going to be alone so that I could hear him. It's almost like the forces or my destiny set it up because I could never have done this in the city. I could never have done it, you know, like I had gotten separated from my husband. I couldn't have done it with somebody else around all the time. It was it was a very specific set of circumstances that made this available to me. Okay. All right. And yes, I was at the whim of Billy for sure. <laughs> like, 
Oh, oh, that's another thing people will say, like, well, why didn't you ask him questions, you know? Why did you? And I, I think I said somewhere in the book, because, like, he would never answer my questions. He was definitely in charge of this, and that was kind of fine with me, because when we were alive, when he was alive, I was always in charge of everything with him. So now he was in charge, and I just kind of surrendered to it. Mm. Yeah, and what kind of questions would you really ask anyway? I mean, I don't really... Oh, I don't know. They keep... I don't know. What would lottery I, numbers? Oh, I know, like personal <laughs> questions. Oh, like people want to know, like, why I didn't ask him, what's the lotto number? Right. Yeah. <laughs> or... You know, or something about my life, like, oh, don't you, you know, don't you ask him, like, what should I do? Should I do this or that? Well, actually, he would never answer those questions because, you know, we all have to kind of figure things out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah, why would – the whole kind of point of a lot of this is that they, you're on your own journey, so it wouldn't make, you know, any sense for him to interfere with that. That's that's perfectly said. Yes, he was not, you know, I think one of the beautiful things for me is that his message is extremely empowering. Like, don't listen to this one, don't listen to that one, learn to see life through your own eyes and decide everything for yourself. Because there's a lot of illusion in the world and there there are a lot of false teachers in the world. And the one thing that we do have is our own consciousness and our own discernment. So that that was a big lesson. So therefore, he's not going to tell me what to do. (laughs) Not anymore, right? No. <laughs> well, he'll tell me what to do, but it doesn't, you know, it it, it kind of more serves his purposes than mine. <laughs> now, how has the, I guess, uh, let me wrap, try and help him wrap my mind around the timeline of all this. Uh, how long ago did this all begin? How long did it last? Is it still going on today? Yeah, it began in 2005. It is still going on today, but... I've taken a little bit of a sabbatical starting, I think, in about mid-August. Like, I've asked him to just give me a little space. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is that, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. You do, okay. You know, the, no, 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 I'm just trying to, <laughs> no, you know, think right. of an honest answer. Like, you know, the book came out in March. It's kind of become your whole life, and you need and to sort of... And become, yeah, yeah, like everything. And, you know, people are asking me, is there going to be another book? And, like, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I feel like, you know, he taught me that I should do what I want. So, in a way, I'm trying to see what I really, really want, because sometimes people ask me questions, and... I feel kind of strange answering them because, you know, he's just Billy. He's like, I mean, I believe everything that he says, but he's just Billy. And I feel like, I, you know, I'm in this funny position of answering these age-old questions. I see exactly what you mean, yeah. It's like and you I only have the one witness. Right, and I don't feel comfortable, you know, kind of. I used to do it more, like, oh, you know, like, well, this would mean that, or uh, just deep questions.
decisions about the meaning of life or, or this and that. And I just like try to stick to the material and also just say, well, Billy says this. This is what Billy says. Because I'm, you know, I don't feel like the ultimate authority and I, I just want to be honest about that. Mm. Okay. So you've kind of just asked him to take a little break for a while. But but it's, like I earlier alluded to sort of the idea of like that there was a limited time window, but it sounds like that he can, that, that, that he hasn't, that there's no limitations, let's say, on what he can do as far as communicating to you. No, there aren't. And I'm just, you know, taking a break because I'm not sure where it's all going or, you know, I, like for me, I, like this book is enough for a while. <laughs> like, like there's so much in it. You know, I'm not like rushing to like go into another period of solitude or I just don't know. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You said earlier that, you know, people who have read the book, they, they feel like there's this presence around them. Um, you know, what's been the, just oh, beyond that, what's been the overall reaction from folks who've checked out the book and read it and stuff? Well, that's kind of the nicest thing for me because I'm always getting letters and the Facebook Afterlife of Billy Fingers page. Like, people are very uplifted from from the book and from the experience, and they feel like, they they really resonate deeply with with the messages and what he says in the book and it's almost like they've always felt these things but they haven't had words for it and when when the words are put to it it gives them an experience and a feeling about life that uh is very 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 helpful hmm. Now your story is really unique as far as, as from what I can tell with the ADCs. I mean, a lot of them are kind of more subtle. I mean, this is like a as, about as subtle as a sledgehammer. You know, it's pretty it's pretty uh profound communication. Have you heard from other people who've been in similar situations? No, I haven't. And um, you know, Bill Guggenheim wrote that you know, it may be the most detailed longest after-death communication ever recorded. But I think this kind of thing used to happen in to, in the ancient Greek times. Mm. And I'm not really sure why it's happened, except I really think that Billy's... Billy, when he was alive, he lived so many different lives. He had money, he was homeless, he was loved, he was in dark spaces, you know, he he lived in a million dollar condo in New York, he was in jail. I mean, it was like he he lived so many lifetimes in one lifetime. And I think somehow and and also he loved helping people. I mean, that was his favorite thing in life. He just, people loved him and he loved people and he really, really genuinely wanted to help. And somehow something was set up so that we were fated to do this. I mean, why did I suddenly find a meditation teacher and, you know, go from someone who had lunch with the girls to someone who, you know, just meditated three hours a day? It's 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 a pretty strange story. Yeah. And so I just think that 
there was some window opening, and there are so many books now about near-death experiences and after-death communications, and I really believe that in a way we're part of a movement, and I think that now that the baby boomers are getting closer to their own deaths and their parents' deaths, and the baby boomers changed so many things in society that maybe there is going to be a little bit of a revolution about what death really is and that it's not something to be so feared and that actually it's a doorway to a great adventure. And I, and I think that that would really help us have better lives as well as better deaths. Yeah, healthier lives, I think, in, in, in a mental way, you know, sort of a, a give people a better peace of mind because there's such an overarching, overriding Unending fear of death. It's, it's permeates the culture. It does. And my, my mother died after Billy died. And because of my experience with Billy, I was able to have a much more open and beautiful, along with the sadness, experience of her death. And I think if, you know, it's so hard to, like, lose somebody that you love so dearly. But if you know that in a way the love goes on. And also, like, what does it mean? Like, if I could have this communication, and I know Bill talks in his book about so many people having these kind of communications. What does it mean? It It, it actually means that we're divine, eternal beings. Even now. So when you, when you have that change of mind that you're a cosmic being in a body, then it really enriches your life in a way that I think nothing else can. It gives you the idea that this isn't all that there is, which is a nice feeling, especially when you're going through some tough times. It is a nice feeling, especially when you're going through tough times. And uh, not to just identify, I think one of the things Billy always says is, you know, see beyond the circumstances that you're in. Because really, you're, you're bigger than the circumstances because actually every, every cell in your body was formed on a star. I mean, literally. And when you connect with that fact... That's something uh, I found out, you know, through the book that Carl Sagan used to say. When you feel yourself as part of the cosmos, you kind of connect with the amazing miracle of being alive. Like one of the things, you know, in the book, Billy has many different kinds of life reviews. I forget if it's three or four, but one of them he says, you know, it's not about what he did. It's about just the miracle of being alive, of just being in a body and breathing and being able to hear and see. Like, we lose touch with the miracle that's life because we're so caught up in, you know, our problems or what we are accomplishing or, you know, are we valuable? Are we valuable in the eyes of, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 and and you just 
brought back to that just miracle of your breath, of your life. I see exactly what you're saying, you know. It's kind of like you you, you got to realize you don't have it so bad. Sometimes you see somebody that has it worse, and that that's when it really drives home. But you really need to have that perspective more often than not without being prompted by the unfortunate circumstances of others. That's very true. You know, and that's the other thing. Like, you know, he's so realistic. Like, he says, you know, when the hard parts come, you don't have to like it. You don't have to pretend and say, oh, I'm so glad that this hard thing is happening. That, you know, being part of being human is, of course, you're going to prefer pleasure over pain. That's part of the plan. But then he'll say to me, this isn't in the book, but that when you're going through, sometimes if I'm going through something that's really hard, he'll go, oh, yeah, you're not doing simple math now. Now you're doing calculus. Hmm. Because we really reap a lot from from our difficulties often because difficulties can make you grow because you have to kind of jump a level to deal with them. So, you know, he'll remind me, oh, you know, so now you're doing calculus. <laughs> now you've got, you know, something really complicated, something that you're afraid of or something that... You know, you have to really draw on your resources. It's about change and growth. And that's the interesting thing about the afterlife, too, that I learned. Like, somehow my vision was always that it was going to be kind of a place you just get to and you're there. But there's a lot of change and growth in the afterlife, even more than there is on this dimension. So... You know, that's quite surprising. So, you know, change and growth is something, even though it's difficult and sometimes painful, I just say, okay, calculus. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on that change and growth that happens in the afterlife? And also the one thing you said that stood out was you said Billy had uh, three or four life reviews. And when you hear the near-death experiences, obviously, you only hear the one. Did he ever intimate or explain why he had subsequent life reviews. Right, because his the things that he's talking about is um, a much deeper level than near-death experience, the person's coming back, but mm-hmm. he's not coming back. And I think one of the major differences here is that a lot of times people who have near-death experiences say when they do their life review that they feel like pain at the some of the things that they've done or some of the things that they've caused people. Right. But Billy says, like, in his first life review, which is like a similar kind of life review where you actually, you know, see movie of your life, he said that he sees it in a very detached Buddha-like way with no no judgment at, at all. And I think one of the differences, too, is where he is, the depth of where he is, is so loving because there's you're surrounded by the love of these higher beings that there isn't pain on that level. Like, there's no more pain anymore where he is. So therefore, you can't really feel the pain. You can learn, you can look at, but it's not its not a painful thing. Hmm. Interesting. 
Like physically painful or emotionally? I guess both, right? I guess emotionally. Like yeah. when people are talking about near-death experiences and life review, they say, you know, they feel bad or they feel the pain that they caused anybody. But Billy says, no, he just, it's all fascinating. He's seeing things. He's learning things. But it's kind of a little bit detached. And then he goes on and he looks at his book of life with, another being like one of the things I would say that you know being in the afterlife and not coming back is is kind of an evolutionary journey towards becoming a higher being yourself that's what I was going to ask you because it's like you where where you almost get a it, you almost get wrapped up into like, I don't know if you know the old expression, like turtles all the way down. Like if, when you die, if you go to the afterlife, are we going to be sitting around in the afterlife going, what do you think happens next? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not at all. I mean, it was, it was very active. He met, he met a guide. He met, um, I don't want to spoil it, but, okay. but, you know, he goes through a lot of different experiences. There are times he is very, very still and kind of in a place of bliss. But then it's like when he's in these still blissful places, he's kind of absorbing this higher unconditional love and these qualities of the divine. And then he incorporates them into himself and then he's still himself, but he's evolved. Mm, okay, that, yeah. that was another surprise was that I think my concept was you die and you become part of like a pool of bliss. Yeah, I've and heard you that lose, idea. Right, you lose your identity. But he seemed to keep his identity, but the higher parts of his identity. That's what I would say. Okay. Now, one of the other ideas, I guess, you know, and it's a very simplistic sort of idea that people have when you die is that you go and you're with all the of the loved ones and your friends and your family that passed away. Did he give any indication sort of of what the interaction is like amongst the the people beyond, if you will? Yes. Well, that's uh, one of the things that was surprising because he – the very, very first level that you go to in the afterlife is where you meet your relatives. Yes, you meet your pets. You know, it's a place of reunion. But actually, Billy skipped that step because he was really, when he was alive, he was like very, very secretly, because I really didn't know this except from his journals, he was really, really into the spiritual, and he didn't, he didn't really care about meeting somebody that much. He was like just going for the bliss, I guess. Yeah. But yes, everybody is reunited with their loved ones. But then later on, there's another kind of reunion that's even more intense when you uh, meet in this universal state. So, you know, in the first part. When you just die, like my father was there for him, um, he went up this thing called a chamber, which is like a birthing canal, and my father was there. Um, and usually people 
have these reunions on the first level, which is kind of the level of beliefs and ideas. But then later on, there are reunions in a much deeper way that uh, it's like soul to soul, light to light, um, very beautiful, really. Yeah. Okay. That's one of the things, you know, they, they really want to, I think that keeps a lot of people going. It has to, you know, that, that you hear that when people die, you know, we'll, we'll be reunited on the other side. So it's good that at least. Well, you absolutely does. will. But the thing is also, you know, you don't even have to wait till then. Like, it's amazing on Facebook how many people have and how many letters I get of how connected they feel to their loved ones um, who are here, you know, when they, while they're still here, they still have this feeling of love and protection. And yes, you know, I always say, wow, it'd be really great if one day a year your loved ones could come here to this level and you could get a hug. I mean, it's it's a different it's a different kind of thing than than being in the body, but also, you know, it's the person's soul that still exists. So it's really the best and most beautiful part of them that you can reach out for. Hmm. I'll, I'll tell you a great example of this. I got a letter from a woman who her father died when she was in her late 20s. And after he died, she realized that even though he was kind of an army man and not the most affectionate person, that he had really loved her in ways she didn't realize when she was alive, when he was alive. And she used to play a song for him, like, You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings. Mm -hmm. And she would think of him a lot, and she would play the song, and she would say, Here, Daddy, this is for you. And then one day she was having a really hard day, and she turned on the radio, and the song came on. You were the wind beneath my wings. And she said somehow she knew now, like she had reached out to him, and now he was reaching back. Yeah. So, you know, it's good to reach out. You don't have to have expectations, but, you know, you don't have to wait to get that feeling of being united or that love feeling. You don't have to wait till you pass over, really. Yeah. I think if you're open to it, chances are it, it will happen, you know. I've had that experience where I sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> I don't want to oh, open go up. go ahead. Uh, no, 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 you don't want to hear this. I'll tell you after the show. But, yeah, you need – I think that people who are open to it, then it happens. And the funny part is I think that it's the people who – or dismiss it, as you said earlier, that, that's kind of where you see the anger from people, you know, who kind of lash out at this idea. It's, a, it's like if they would just open their minds to it. Yeah, although I'm not even sure if that's it either because, you know, I get, like, letters like, they are open, I'm trying so hard, and it is kind of mysterious. Like, I don't, I don't know why, but I think sometimes people have expectations that it's going to happen in a certain way, and then it happens in another way, and then they miss it. Right, yeah. Right, because you never know, like, how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen or what it's going to be like. But I think a good thing to do is to reach out in some way and pay tribute to that person 
um, I did that with one of my one of my girlfriends. She's like, oh, well, I wish I could do it. I said, well, why don't you reach out? Why don't you pay tribute and, you know, tell your father how much you love him and this and that. And then she really started to feel his presence. And it was a very joyful presence. So reach out without expectation of how exactly it's going to be. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, don't attach any expectations to it, and chances are you'll get a better result. And and don't I, I would say too for folks who are trying to really kind of open up this thing is you know I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself or the other or the person on the other side you know because it, it has to kind of happen organically I think. I agree, and and also you know even if you don't have the experience yourself. Take joy and pleasure in other people's experience because that means that it's true for you as well. You know, sometimes I think it's just genetic. Like my father used to tell me that he had discussions with his father and mother when they were dead. And I thought he meant like in his head, you know, like, yeah. oh, my father was, a, you know. But it, but this also runs in families, I've learned. So, you know, I'm not a great tennis player, but I could do this. So people have different talents and skills. And I think what you said is really good. So, But, you know, take pleasure in other people's experience because it means that it's actually true for you as well. Exactly. Well, folks can take pleasure in your experience by checking out the book, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. They can find out more about it at afterlifeofbillyfingers.com. Pretty simple, easy to find. And if uh, you don't want to do all that typing, just punch in anniekagan.com, and that will bring you to the website as well. Yeah, and you can get a free chapter there and also visit Facebook, Afterlife of Billy Fingers, because there's a lot of sayings from the book with all kinds of pictures and it's a really fun site. Yeah, sounds like a vibrant community over there. It is. Sounds good. Uh, beyond, uh, you kind of you kind of said you're sort of uh, in flux, let's say, right now. But do you have any? This this is the kind of thing that I could see being turned into a film or something like that. Are there any plans? Not just that, but I mean, what what, what sort of stuff do you have cooking that that you have you considered at all, maybe uh, down the line? Anything? Well, since I used to be a musician. I do, I have been thinking of doing kind of a music in the background with some words, new words from Billy, helping people uh, reach a higher level of consciousness. That's kind of on my, on my, on my list right now, but. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned, as they stay say. Stay tuned. <laughs> exactly. Once again, folks, definitely want to check out afterlifeofbillyfingers.com is the website. The book is Afterlife of Billy Fingers. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Your story is really tremendous, Annie, and uh, I wish we had more time to dig into it, but I want folks to go out and uh, pick up the book and, and dig into it themselves and and. Really uh, get a feel for this remarkable story. It really is one of a kind and uh, a real tremendous insight, perhaps, into what is going on on the other side. As you said, you know, it's it's just Billy, but still, he's, he's the only Billy we got right now, so we've got to take what we can. So, folks, check out The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. And Annie Kagan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Tim. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 8. Big, big thanks to Dr. Annie Kagan for coming on the show and sharing her remarkable story. 
You can find out more from her at theafterlifeofbillyfingers.com. Pretty simple, all one word, theafterlifeofbillyfingers.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we've got four emails here covering a variety of subjects, so let's dive on in. The first one comes from Sand in Liverpool, England, and here's what she has to say. Just wanted to send you a message, Tim, to say thanks, and I think you do a really great job. I admire you a lot, love and appreciate the work and effort you put in. If it wasn't for your podcasts, my working week would be, how can I say, um, shit. Just love you, your voice, the way you interview. Even love it when I hear you ever so quietly take a drag of your ciggy. Or sometimes I just hear your lighter and know you're enjoying a smoke. Anyway, I don't speak to anyone about these subjects. Now and again I try, but people are so small-minded it pisses me off pretty quick as I know they haven't even done a tiny bit of research, yet are ready to say it's all BS. Plus, have heard that much info gets confused myself, then it looks like I don't know what I'm talking about. Ha ha. I know what I mean anyway, so thanks again, Tim. You're a darling. Lots and lots of love. San, from Liverpool, England. P.S. I once wrote you before, and you read my email at the end of Nick Redfern's interview. I nearly fell off my chair at work. I'm a sewing machinist. Told one of the girls because I was so excited. She didn't appreciate the excitement I was showing. LOL. But I was made up. So thanks, hon. There you go. Thank you very much for writing in, San. Pick yourself up off the floor. I have read another one of your emails here at the end of the program. A good uh, jumping-off point on this email is probably an update on the smoking situation. I'm still working hard on trying to quit smoking. I'm going to rededicate myself soon to it. I can honestly say the intense schedule of producing these BOA audio episodes here for Season 8, because we've got back on the weekly track finally, certainly has given me less time to focus on quitting smoking, but... Probably following the holidays, I'm going to redouble my efforts once again, and hopefully, finally, I can once and for all kick the smoking habit. It's just disgusting and expensive and terrible for your health, and I do not recommend anyone do it, but I am addicted, so I've got to get over that and uh, kick the habit. And it's something we've discussed here at the end of the show numerous times, so since San brought it up, I figured I would mention it. Additionally, I should give thanks, of course, for the international listeners. That's what put San's email here at the top of the list. Liverpool, England. Pretty amazing to think that right now, San is likely listening to this episode at her job in Liverpool, England, working as a sewing machinist, and creepy old banal is reaching all the way across the Atlantic and filtering into her earbuds and talking about the world of the paranormal. It's pretty amazing, and it's uh, humbling to think that the reach of this little program has gone so far. And before I let you go, San, I got one more point here from your email that we should talk about. That's talking to people about the subject. It's maddening sometimes. I can totally empathize with your plight. Uh, the weird part is, you know, I got the Facebook page, and... 
I got a lot of BOA Audio listeners who are friends with me. I've kind of tried to push them over to the Banal of America Facebook page. But on the page also, I have a lot of folks that I went to high school with, a lot of folks I went to college with who are friends with me on Facebook. I think they're just bewildered by what I've been doing for the last decade or so. Sometimes they reach out to me and usually they're interested in the subject. Thankfully, I don't have a lot of people write to me and say, what are you gone mad? They probably say that about me behind my back, but that's fine. I got enough people talking behind my back. Believe me, it's uh, all good. But I can totally understand where you're coming from, San. You got to pick your battles with these folks. Don't try and change the mind of someone whose mind is already closed. Don't try and open their mind because they're not going to have it and you're just going to get frustrated and walk away. Have conversations with folks who are genuinely interested in the subject. If it comes up naturally, don't proselytize about this stuff. That's one of the big things I try to tell folks, one of the big things that I purposely try to avoid. I'm not going out trying to convert people into believers in the paranormal, but if the subject comes up, I'm more than happy to talk to them about this really weird world that we've devoted so many years to exploring here on the program. That pretty much covers all the points in San's email. Big thanks once again for writing in. San, hope you enjoyed hearing your email once again at the end of the program. Next email comes from Samuel. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Greetings, Tim. Let me thank you for your amazing content and especially your podcast, which makes my 10-hour workdays something to look forward to. I just finished the available Bruce Rucks podcasts and was blown away. I have a lot of questions I would like to talk over with him, so I am seeking his email address. If you could put me in contact with him, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Samuel. Thank you for writing in Samuel. Back-to-back emails from folks who enjoy the program at their workplace. It is always a humbling message to receive from folks who are listening to BOA Audio and telling us that we help them get through their work day. Hopefully, with the conclusion of this episode, we got you through one more day. Regarding the Bruce Rucks podcasts and his email address, I can't be giving out guests' email addresses, unfortunately. Most of the guests, I'd say 95% of them, have websites or Facebook pages. Bruce is a special exception. Bruce is completely off the grid, and I think he likes it that way. So it's really not my place to be giving out that kind of information. I can forward information to Bruce. If he wants to act on it, that's fine. But I can't be giving out that kind of stuff to the BOA listeners. However, I have some great news for folks on the Bruce Rucks front. Two pieces of great news, in fact. First of all, as of this very moment, we are a mere two weeks away from Rucks Giving 2013. And I actually spoke to Bruce on the phone last night. He's doing really well, and he's really looking forward to this year's Rucks Giving festivities. It will be a live edition of the program, and I'm giving the hardcore BOA audio listeners who are tuning in right now the opportunity to submit your questions for Bruce Rucks on this year's Rucks Giving. So send them off to me, and I'll put them in the pile to be submitted to Bruce Rucks in two weeks' time on the live Rucks Giving Spectacular. That's good news number one. The other good news is 
that hopefully in the not too distant future, maybe in the next few weeks, maybe by the end of the year at some point, Bruce Rutz is going to be penning some new stuff for Banal of America. I've been begging him to join BOA and kind of putting it off for a very long time until we got this WordPress set up underway at Banal of America. And now with the launch of BOA 3.0, the doors have been opened to bring Bruce Rocks into the fold. As I said, I spoke to him last night. We talked about this as well. He's very excited to be doing some writing for Banal of America. It was already sort of bouncing some ideas off of me. And the good part about that is that will give Bruce a bit of an online presence, which will allow folks like Samuel and, believe me, folks, the many, many other people who have written to me trying to get in touch with Bruce Rucks. Now you'll be able to just post your stuff in the comments on Bruce Rucks's columns, and I'm sure he will get back to you. That way, you'll be able to reach out to Bruce, and I'll no longer have to be the middleman on these exchanges. So, two pieces of good news with regards to Bruce Rucks. Stay tuned to banalofamerica.com for, hopefully any day now, the first Bruce Rocks column, and in two weeks' time, on November 26th, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, it's Rocks Giving 2013 Live. The next email comes from Nancy, no hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. I've been devouring your podcast for the past few months, and they've helped me get through a lot of hours sitting at my computer. I don't like every episode, but it's great that you cover so many aspects of the paranormal. You have a respectful, decent way of interacting with your guests that is sadly lacking in so many interview shows. I really appreciate that. Now's when the shoe drops, folks. I know you're waiting for this. Okay, so here's the sad thing. I can't listen to your BOA live broadcasts due to your foul language. I've heard you comment on this subject before, and you always end the comments by saying that people write in and tell you that they like the swearing. Well, I'm willing to bet that you're losing a lot of people like me who will just stop listening and never let you know why. You're obviously an intelligent, thoughtful person with a great sense of curiosity and adventure. I can be listening to a show and really getting into the topic, then BAM! You drop the F-bomb and ruin it for me. When you don't swear yourself, the sound of it is extremely jarring, and immediately, the swearing person seems to be a few degrees less intelligent than they were a moment ago. I would not let my kids listen to your show for all the tea in China. Like I said, it makes me kinda sad. I challenge you to leave it out for a while. If you suffer too much withdrawal or your ratings go down, you can always throw it back in. I'm guessing that won't happen, and those of us with sensitive ears will be able to enjoy all your great programming without having to mentally bleep out any of the content. Thanks for listening, and keep up the great work. Nancy. Thank you very much for writing in, Nancy. Folks, Nancy actually wrote in quite a while ago. I'd say, well, obviously, during the BOA Live, sessions which took place throughout August and September and I really took to heart her email. Uh, I really gave it some serious consideration and the more astute BOA audio listeners, the ones 
who really pay close attention may have noticed that I believe so far here in Season 8, there have been no F-bombs. I have really tried to cut down on the swearing here on BOA Audio. I can't guarantee that it's never going to happen, but I totally understand Nancy's point, and it kind of goes along with the evolving nature of the program. She's right. She's certainly not the first person that's written in about the swearing on the show, and I do love the freedom of speech that comes with Banal of America, that I can say the F word whenever I want, that I can say even more foul language. I love the ability and freedom to do that, but that doesn't mean that I have to do that. So I wouldn't say that I've purposely halted my language on the program, but it's kind of gotten into my mind more in the last few weeks or so about the swearing on the show. The other part of it is, I really do enjoy letting the guests swear. This is sort of a free place for them to be. This is a safe place for them to talk about sometimes really outlandish stuff, sometimes really fringe material. And if they want to swear, I totally understand. I'm never going to go around bleeping the episodes. I don't believe in that kind of thing, although I think it would sound kind of neat and cool. But I'm not going to do that because that would be way too much additional work. And I'm not going to discourage the guests from swearing because the, the last thing you really want to do when you have a guest on the program, as I said, this is supposed to be a safe place for them. I don't want to start throwing 300 restrictions at them. I don't even want to start throwing one restriction at them, which is the language barrier. But perhaps if they hear me using clean language, they will also adhere to that unwritten policy. And it certainly isn't a policy that is hard and fast. I can almost guarantee you there'll be guests that I'll have on the program. I'm thinking about my good friend Greg Bishop. He's somebody that once we get going on the show, we forget there's even an audience in place. And then there's a good chance there's going to be F-bombs flying left and right. That said, I'm trying to kind of avoid using the foul language. I want people to be able to listen to this with their kids. I want folks to be able to put the program on during a long car ride to Grandma's house and not have to be worried about me just going off at the mouth with a bunch of F-bombs. Nancy's right about this. So with that said, I guess just stay tuned. Keep an ear out. Let me know if you hear some foul language on the program. It may happen, as I said. It may happen time to time, but it's certainly not going to be our calling card. I don't want to be known as the program that is so filthy you can't listen to it with Grandma. Although now that I said that, that sounds like a fantastic tagline. So maybe we'll go in that direction if our ratings suffer. Actually, I'm laughing about that part. Nancy, there are no ratings. We are paranormal programming on demand. So I'm not too worried about the download numbers. I don't keep an eye on that sort of thing. My focus 100% of the time is producing compelling content. If 100 people listen to it, that's great. If 1,000 people listen to it, that's even better. If 10,000 people listen to it, that's awesome. And if a million people listen to it, hopefully I can finally make some money on this thing. But I'm not holding my breath on that. So don't worry about BOA ever kowtowing to the ratings. At the end of the day, we're focused on making compelling programming 
for the BOA Audio listeners, and if lightening the amount of foul language on the program helps that cause, then I am all for it. And the final email comes from Dan the Man. He says, I just want to encourage you by telling you that you are by far one of the best interviewers I have ever encountered. I have listened to 100% of your podcasts, and I wish you had the time, energy, and monetary resources to do a podcast every week. Hope to buy you a pint or two if I ever make it to Boston, or you come to Chattanooga. I wish you God's greatest blessings. Thank you, Dan the Man. I'm intrigued by this Chattanooga invitation. I would like to go to Chattanooga. I bet it's an awesome place. Sounds like they're partying all the time down there, just from the name Chattanooga. I will take you up on that pint, Dan, someday. Someday I will show up in Chattanooga, and I will find you, and I will force you to buy me a pint or two, it says right here on the email. So I'm actually entitled in writing to two Chattanooga pints, which I will definitely take you up on someday in the future. I don't have the date on this email, but Dan must be a little bit behind because we've come very close to producing a podcast every week since we launched BOA Audio Season 8 and really dating all the way back to the close of BOA Audio Season 7. A lot of the time, energy, and monetary issues which Dan mentions here seem to have abated quite a bit as the summer came to a close. Thank goodness. And... As I kind of discussed uh, during BOA Audio Season 7, around the end of the season, I was getting increasingly frustrated with myself for not producing content on a regular basis. And really, when we launched Season 8, I wanted to rededicate myself to getting BOA Audio on the right track. If not weekly, then definitely every 10 days. Thankfully, we've actually been hitting the show on a weekly basis now for quite some time. So we haven't had any long stretches except for that one little period there at the end of October when my work schedule kept me from producing an episode. A lot of that is thanks to BOA Live, which allows me to roll out episodes much, much faster and then in turn use the time following the live episodes to get the next taped program out to you. In fact, you're going to be listening to this one on 11, 12, 13, but it's been pretty much done since around November 9th, which is pretty amazing for us. I can't guarantee we're going to keep up this kind of pace throughout Season 8, but we have definitely gotten the rest of 2013 pretty well sketched out. So hopefully by the time 2013 comes to a close, we'll already be 13 or 14 episodes deep into Season 8, which is unbelievable when you look at the way we rolled through shows the past two seasons. Thank you very much, Dan the Man, for your kind words. Hope you have been enjoying the past few episodes since you wrote to me. And on that note, we'll close the book on BOA Audio listener feedback. Big thanks to Dan the Man, Nancy, Samuel, and San in Liverpool, England for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. 
If you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, here are the ways you can do so. Write to me at boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. Additionally, if you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. You can also find that by clicking the forum button at Benal of America. Lots of great discussions going on there regarding BOA audio as well as the world of the paranormal and pop culture. Beyond that, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That'll bring up my profile. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Let me see. Facebook. Oh, no! (laughs) Oh, God. And finally, let me plug Banal of America on Facebook. Our, our numbers are wildly changing here. We're, we're back to 1,100. I may have to stop reading the numbers here at the end of the program because the numbers keep flipping wildly. Uh, on the last edition of the program, we thanked the 1,100th like, but it looks like we have another 1,100th like. So we'll also give a shout-out to Teresa Williams-Montz, who is the new 1100th like. And on that note, I will not thank anyone until we get to 1200. So that way I don't have to worry about the numbers changing too wildly here at the end of the show. Nonetheless, if you are on Facebook and you want to get more info on Banal of America, you can always catch the latest breaking news from BOA at Banal of America on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America and the page will pop right up, and then like us. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. Since the launch of BOA 3.0, slowly but surely, the band has begun getting back together. The past couple of days have seen two new columns from the BOA staff posted at BOA 3.0. Leslie has an all-new Grey Matters talking about the Datlov Pass incident. I may have mispronounced that, but the infamous Datlov Pass incident, Leslie discusses that, specifically the new book, Mountain of the Dead, The Datlov Pass Incident, by Keith McCloskey. Additionally, just posted at Banal of America a few hours ago, Richard Thomas's Room 101 returns with a column concerning the Illuminati and whether or not they're using ancient cloning techniques to continue their control over the planet. Chilling stuff from Richard Thomas. So an all-new Grey Matters and an all-new Room 101 at Banal of America right now. 
head on over and check those out. And hopefully more and more of the BOA staff will be returning to the party as things get underway with BOA 3.0. Now comes the time in the program where we pass the bucket around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. Head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of America.com, and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, you can do that by mailing your donation to Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. You can get that complete address at Banal of America right under the PayPal button. And if you mail us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America because my bank is anal and they will not cash those checks. And please include some form of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation. As always, it bears repeating, my friends, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Much like previous taped editions of BOA Audio Season 8, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for me to tell you what will be coming on the next edition of BOA Audio. I'll be taping what looks to be a fantastic conversation tomorrow in the afternoon. That may be next week's episode. However, I'm also kind of itching to do another live edition of the program prior to the live Rucks giving, so we may actually be doing another live edition of BOA Audio on November 19th. Either way, I'm almost certain that we'll be coming at you next Tuesday, November 19th, with another edition of BOA Audio, either tomorrow's conversation or another live edition of BOA Audio. So we've got a whole bunch of stuff in the till, and there will definitely be another episode coming at you next week. Stay tuned to Banal of America and BOA on Facebook for the announcement of next week's program. Hopefully, the news on who the guest will be will be coming at you later on this week. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Once again, big, big thanks to Bill Guggenheim and Dr. Amy Kagan for joining us here to discuss after-death communication. Also, thanks to Dan the Man, Nancy, Samuel, and San from Liverpool, England for writing in on BOA audio listener feedback. And finally, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners Every week I struggle with new ways 
to put you folks over. I cannot thank you enough for your support of this program. You literally are the fuel that drives the paranormal mothership that is Banal of America. Thank you for your enduring support of this program. And, as always, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.